hasn't even come out yet. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. This is an episode that we do annually. We do it every single year. We rank our 10 favorite Akira Kurosawa movies. Chris, go. Uh, number one is Seven Samurai, obviously. Number two, it's shooting way up my list. Well, no, we'll put it. We'll put that at three. We'll put Sanjuro at three. Number two is going to be high and low. Obviously, I can't believe I stepped over it. John, we're not doing this again. You just threw this at me. I can go through memory and do my top ten. <laughs> uh, Throne of Blood, obviously, ran. Uh, Dursu is going to make its way into my top ten. There's no question about that. Was it not uh, in our top ten last year? I think it probably was. It It'd be hard been. for me to believe. I, I believe it was in our top tens. And Tony was like, Dersu. And we were like, okay, come on and talk about Dersu yeah. with us. So yeah, if you're talking to Tony about it, it definitely shot up on the list, <laughs> wherever it was. If it was number five, it's number four now, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, we're talking about uh, the year 2022, uh, the films we saw, the thoughts we might have had about them. And we're joined by Mr. Martin Kessler. Uh, who I just want to say, Martin, thank you for another great year of personally just getting me enthused about movies, uh, just talking about them, doing your podcast appearances, writing, uh, Twitter, just every time you talk about a movie, I get so interested and I'm so intrigued. I just, every year, I just, I'm so thankful for you, man, for just bringing that to us uh, on top of being thankful for all the appearances you've done with us this year. You talked about Batman, Errol Morris, pretty much everything on the podcast. So, so thanks for Total recall too. Totally yeah, totally. Yeah. The yeah. Strugatsky well, brothers. Strugatsky brothers. Thank you so much. I, I, I like a lot of things, so it's fun to be able to <laughs> talk about them. And uh, you know, my my interests range from the lower middle brow to the upper middle brow. So <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Yeah, you're no fine art. That actually reminds me. This used to make people angry when I would say this. Is that I hate both very rich people and very poor people. It reminds me of that. Um, it used to be people like, why Why do you hate very poor people? It's like, you haven't fucking been around them. Most people who are destitute are extremely terrible to be around. Anyway, um, I feel the same way about Ruggiero Duodato movies. Rest in peace. Um, they're extremely oh. terrible. They're extremely terrible, those movies. Yeah, yeah. God bless them. God bless them. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, just just like last year, you know, we're just going to do kind of like a just a loose talk. We're not going to do rankings or anything, you know, with the sight and the sound list coming out. Everyone's kind of got listomania these days. Uh, we're never really about list. We just kind of like to talk about movies that we've seen. Uh, although I feel like, Chris, this year is going to be kind of a sequel of our year yeah. and last year because I have a lot of the same thoughts. I definitely last year we kind of talked a lot about, you know, the death of like really rich cultural converse about films. The public discourse had just gotten so bad that that really kind of weighed on it. This year we did a few things, kind of went back to Toronto. We did a lot of different stuff that we used to do. And it was definitely I at least for me, I think I feel like I made an effort to like see some more movies and like trying to try to get back into it. But I kind of ended it with sort of the same feeling of like, oh, there are a handful of things I liked, I guess. I'd have to sit here and think about what they were. Yeah, Martin, do, do you, this was the thing we talked about last year is feeling a bit of disconnect from movies. We're a little older than you. Do you do you feel that? Do, that sort of, how connected do you feel to film culture in relationship to me and John, who both of us, I, I would say, I don't want to speak for you, John, but a little bit of the theme last year and, and this year too, like John said, 
last year I didn't see any of the big movies that everybody was talking about. I just didn't see any of them. This year I did because of Toronto. I saw the Fablemans and Triangle of Sadness and stuff like that, you know, that everybody's talking about. But I don't feel like, oh, I'm plugged back into what I was, was. It felt like more of a confirmation of being unplugged. Like if somebody were to refer to me as a cinephile, now I would wince. I don't feel like that, you know, 500, 600 movies a year, super movie nerd that I was for, you know, 35, 36 years of my life. How, what's your relationship to the culture? I, I have a lot to say about <laughs> culture, uh, maybe with one of the movies that we're going to be discussing. But no, I, I've been feeling unplugged too. I think this is something that started since the pandemic. I haven't gone to theaters much at all. Uh, and, you know, when I have seen newer films, I... Yeah. There's a couple I'm excited about, but like I just don't feel that same kind of need to be in the discussion and feel as as plugged in with some of these. I, I think I've gotten myself in trouble on Twitter just because I like I didn't care about some of the discourse going on with some of these movies. But like the the real like nourish my soul kind of cinema that I I watched this year it was me sort of going back and revisiting a lot of older movies. You know, I feel like I was getting that need more from films I'd already seen before, older films, classic films. And, you know, there were things I, I definitely liked this year, but it's hard to say that I felt like that, um, you know, sometimes you watch a movie and it's, it like kicks you on your ass and you want to talk about it and connect with everybody and discuss and see what they think. And I, I don't know how much I've had that with films this year, but... And, and both of you have been like assaulted on Twitter over like your opinions or like your side by sides by just the worst people on the planet. You know, I just I don't I can't imagine what that must be like. So that must like push you even further away from like wanting to get involved and like oh, any kind of like well, hot topic with film. I'm I remember one of them. I, I knew it was bad uh, yeah. when I got like a like people from like I have non-film social media places that I hang out. Yeah, you know, I'll talk about uh, boys or, you know, whatever. Like, and I knew like one of them got really bad when I was getting like messages from people who weren't uh, really aware of my film stuff. Yeah. Who were like, hey, is this you? I was like, oh shit. Like, it's yeah, no, when, when you get the, are you doing okay message from like 10 people, you're like, wow, this is, but what's funniest about that is I got blocked by all of these fuck faces. I didn't on, on the, the superhero tweet, that was objectively proven to be true for the record when I said that all of these people who hate superhero movies are going to have a tough time accepting that in 25 years, they're going to be shown as beloved classics at places like the New Beverly, right? People got furious about that, absolutely furious. And then one month later at the New Beverly, there was a sold out screening of Batman Forever. Exactly 25 years after Batman Forever came out, this worst, the fucking worst was being <laughs> celebrated. Like, and never has a 25 year prediction been proven true more quickly than my 25 year prediction about this but all of these people i didn't fight with anybody i didn't argue with anybody there was one person on a different thread who finally baited me into it and i like lost my shit at one dude right 
who immediately screen capped it all and started putting it into the other thread, right? And I was like, oh, you just can't engage. But all of these fucking idiots from like Vulture and IndieWire and like all of these assholes, they all blocked me. I didn't fight with anybody. I didn't argue with anyone. I got blocked for an, a, a true position that was actually like sort of value system neutral. It wasn't like... Hey, I love superhero movies. It's like, this is the way culture works. This is the way it is. And it really did like, it is one of those things when people are fucking talentless morons and their industry's dying, right? The film criticism industry is dying because none of these writers are any good. Like basically everybody who engaged in me in the pylon is out of jobs and has trouble working and making money because they're no good at their jobs, right? This is like the unspoken thing is that all these people are bad writers, so no one wants to read them. All they have left is like social media controversy and like stirring this stuff up, right? It's it's hard to it's easy to ignore all of that when they haven't come after you in any way. Then when they come after you, there's a lot of like, you understand this is why you're irrelevant. Not that people writing about superhero movies is good or bad, but because you are the death of the culture. If you're somebody who's like, why is cinema culture dying? And your job is to write about and marshal and protect cinema culture. You need to understand it's because you're fucking worthless is what you need to understand. Your work is worthless. If culture is dying, right? cinema culture is dying and your job is to marshal and protect that culture it's because what you do is bad you're bad at it you know you're saying there is no longer an artist in the audience to (laughs) greg taylor (laughs) no i'm uh, just saying that like it's just it's easy enough to ignore all this then when they come after you it's like don't you understand you're the problem how do you not understand that you're at fault for this you know Things would be healthier if you were better writers and you were more talented and you were more intelligent and all of those things. But instead, you're not. So it's dying. <laughs> and it's there's, <laughs> there's something that of a relief to that, as I'm sure you're probably relieved to be blocked by, you know, idiots who only have bad opinions. opinions no, opinion. no, they'll unblock they block you the screenshot and then they still shit talk. You. <laughs> yes, they unblock you, take the screenshot and reblock it. It's such cowardly stuff. Just the whole subtweeting thing is the most cowardly shit in the world. Anyway, that stuff is all rotten and rancid and i feel like if you're somebody who like lives for those fights and you just live to get into the pylons right like you have no personality whatsoever but like showing up late to a fight to get in your shots you know then like you're morally rotten and you're also like you're a big fucking loser no i mean there's one thing i got from sticking up a gif of a tarkovsky movie and a gif of the zack Snyder movie (laughs) side by side it's that like a lot of these uh blue checkmark film critic types are way worse than Snyder fans. There are like, a million times worse. I'd rather hang out with this. Well, because th- because they're they're dumb people who have staked their entire personality on being intelligent people, which is the most infuriating type of person to deal with. But what they don't realize is that they have jobs and have those small level of success they have because they're mediocrities. It's like the old Noam Chomsky quote where the BBC interviewer is like, do you think that I change my opinions based on what the BBC 
CDC wants me to say. And he says, no, don't you understand? You have this job because you are the person who will always tell the BBC audience exactly what they want to hear. You guys have these jobs at Vulture and the New York Times and whatever, because you will only ever tell your audience exactly what you want to hear. You are a, a performing animal. You are a trained elephant, right? And that's why you have this job. It's not because, oh, you're going after this audience. It's you have this audience because you're mediocre. But a but... plus for me, at least, was <laughs> I, I feel like I was freed from the public discourse you know, over the last two years. <laughs> I feel like I couldn't give a shit whether you loved everything everywhere all at once or you fucking hated yeah. it. You hate James Gunn, go for it, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't I don't mind. I'm out of it. I'm out. You know? <laughs> I don't have any thoughts on any of these opinions at all. Yeah. I know I don't sound out, but in my day-to-day, -day, I generally am. I may cut all of this just because I, you know, I don't know why I got into it. But let me ask. <laughs> I, every once in a while, something does suck you back in, though. I feel like uh, Al Pacino in Godfather 3, like, just when yeah. I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. <laughs> but uh, what you were saying about the, the depth of culture, that was something that was on my mind a lot, actually, this year. And this is something I got out of a movie that I've seen a lot of people talking about and not necessarily in the way that I took the film. I think maybe even the uh, director didn't necessarily intend for it to be this way. But um, after Yang, for me, I, I thought of this film as like, a, I mean, just to quickly explain it for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about in the near future, this um, couple, it's uh, Colin Farrell and uh, Jodie Turner-Smith. They have an adopted child from China. And they get a robot older brother that's supposed to teach her about Chinese culture, and the robot breaks down. You sure this isn't Megan you're describing? <laughs> I, I, I sort of said that as a as a joke when the movie came out that like uh, you know it was okay, the film was okay, but like would it have been better if the robot went evil and tried to kill the family <laughs> and Colin Farrell had to like beat it up and say tea time is over? Like I, I think something <laughs> you know like. <laughs> You know, was the whole Ozu approach really the best way to tell this? I don't know. It kind of, it might have worked as a as a or horror should, film or, or a should comedy. Megan, or... Should Megan have taken an Ozu approach? As the <laughs> Maybe. Maybe they should have swapped. But like, for me, the whole idea of um, it, this robot that it, like trying to turn culture into something artificial and saying, you know, it's your heritage. It, it makes culture into something that's completely artificial and arbitrary and tied to our our heritage, our ethnicity, our nationality. And for me, what the film is saying is that like that can't exist. That is the death of culture. And that for culture to be alive, it has to be something that you experience and you're surrounded by like a, you know, I think like bacterial culture. It's just like what you're surrounded by that's your culture and i think like for me the film was all about the death of culture in this yeah. very depressing way so i was kind of shocked when i saw a lot of people being like oh it's so uplifting or oh like it's all about the the asian american like i i was like that's not at all what i got out of this movie and again i i'm not even sure this is what the director intended but for me it worked really well as this metaphor for just how culture is kind of breaking down in this 
globalized world and trying to rethink what what having a culture even means today so well it's interesting that you say that because i spent a lot of time this year uh, i think a little bit like post-covid let me get out and do stuff steeped in like actual real physical spacious culture i spent a lot of time at moma and the whitney and and the guggenheim i spent a lot of time in central park i went to a bunch of concerts this year after having not gone to live concerts at all in like 10 years. I went to like 10 or 12 live concerts this year. I went to film form and Metrograph a, a huge amount and, and Lincoln Center compared to what I've done. You know, I went and saw operas and the ballet and all of that in the actual physical space of culture and being around people, being in a movie theater lobby. It It is very different than watching something on a screen. I don't think you can have culture in your bedroom, even if you have cultural pieces, right? Even if you have the record and the DVD and whatever outdated media, the Zune records and DVDs, whatever it is, you know, the thing in your house, You, I, I think that's not culture. I think culture is fundamentally about physical connection and connection within spaces and bumping off of other people and 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 friction with them grinding uh up against the brick walls that they put up that's why when i see people complain about the movie theater experience and like they were loud or they laughed at the wrong time or somebody yelled something out or a kid was crying that's actually part of culture that's actually part of what the experience is to have an amount of rowdiness that's outside of your control that forces you to consider I am a person living in the world who has a relationship to something on screen. If you only have a relationship to the screen, you have nothing, you know? And I really do think that uh, that that's important. But I that's also me and my personal experience. That's why I live in New York City. People, my good friend who I've just known since eighth grade, uh, Marin uh, Ferris was just visiting me and she doesn't like New York because there's too much of it. Like there's too many people around. And I understand why people feel that way about New York. And she gave me the like, why do you pay so much to live here? And the answer is because the culture is really important to me and the real culture of New York City, you know, which also has its bad aspects. You know, you can say culture of New York and there's obvious, you know, set up slam dunk jokes like then you show, you know, whatever it is you've the Dwayne reads on every corner or whatever it's easy to dunk on new york and i completely understand people who detest new york but i think there's something about the real space of it that's very very meaningful to me that's very very meaningful so just to clarify martin was after yang one of your favorite films of the year even though you had uh, reasons to like it that were completely sure. opposite yeah. of other <laughs> yeah I, I would say that that was uh, definitely for me one of the most thought-provoking things I saw this year. So, well, before we get into our our ten list, I want to. I had another question for you guys that I was thinking about a lot this year. And when we're talking about being unplugged from movies, do does does an individual film have the ability to change you anymore? You know, when you're like. 19 and you see Jules and Jim or Band of Outsiders and you walk out of the theater feeling like you're a different person than you were when you went in. You know, that sort of a lot of people have the experience with like a Tarkovsky movie, you know, where just the ability for a movie to change you and feel like you're a fundamentally different person. I I 
was thinking a lot about this. I'll let you guys answer, but I was thinking a lot about this question in the context of an old movie I watched again recently. But but John, do you feel like you have the ability to be changed by an artwork? In my teens to early 20s, I can think of a hundred movies that felt like were formative and changed me in some way. At 43, this year, I think I saw one movie and and it's a complicated response to it. I think I can definitely still get that feeling and it's a tangible one, sort of like what you were saying about, you know, getting out there and like uh, the, the audience experience and why it's important in a movie theater. And, you know, it's just a real world experience, just kind of like feeling the sticky floor of a theater even, you know, or uh, walking from one venue to, you know, to another at the Toronto Film Festival, like is a like a visceral experience that kind of taps into it. And I still engage with artworks and films in that way. And I can still do it in my home, uh, one of my favorite ones I just watched a few days ago, I watched just, you know, on my TV at home, but it, uh, no, I'm sorry, I watched on my laptop because you can only watch it on Apple uh, TV, but it was, uh, it, it felt like something like, this is something that really inspires me to think about things in a different way. This is something that really kind of like cuts deep into me, like goes over me and through me in a way that, you know, an artwork should in the way that you should be like enthused by a film. And then I only find you know, through old films, like you guys are saying, rediscovering, you know, things that you didn't know about from 50 years ago, I think that can still happen. And I think that there still are very exciting artists. And I think that sometimes they they squeak through the system, you know, it gets through. And sometimes it like it goes right to your brain. And this is what the kind of film that that this is the kind of experience I've definitely had. So I think it still happens. I think it does. I think even well, seeing... you sound like you're talking about a specific movie. Are you thinking of a specific movie right now? Right now I'm thinking of a specific movie. Yeah. But I but I had that more than once this year. Why, right? why aren't you saying the name of the specific movie? Because well, I thought we were you know, I don't want to transition right into our. Oh, picks OK. Yet. Um, but no, I. Just an example, these aren't some of my picks, but like seeing uh, Barbarian and Smile in the theater this year, you know, Barbarian was not as good a movie as Smile, but the audience was perfect for it. Like, you know, it just it was the classic horror audience that like jumped at all the right places and screamed things at at the, you know, exactly the right time. It was a great theatrical experience even though walking away i was like i didn't love it but you know i enjoyed the experience of seeing it where smile yeah had a terrible audience that reacted to nothing it was like a packed uh packed theater and i thought it was a very effective horror film but like nobody reacted it was not a fun experience so it's it's interesting to have these kind of like two different things where it's like yeah it matters where you are and who you're with but at the same time uh, take away something from the film that might have been a little bit different or enhanced by, you know, your environment a little bit more. I mean, that's interesting. There were some films I saw this year on streaming or on video, and I thought, like, I bet I would like this more if I saw it in the theater. You know, there's a movie oh, sure. like, yeah. um, like for me, a good, a good example may be Prey, which is a film that, like, I had, like, oh, I like this movie with, you know, about a thousand asterisks. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I felt like, you know, maybe if I saw a, a this very my... low ceiling movie that hits that ceiling. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. You know, but like at the same time, I thought, you know, maybe if they, they put this in the theater and, you know, like made it just a little bit more cinematic, I would be, you know, head over heels for this movie. Like I would just get past all the flaws and, you know, it felt like the wrong kind of way to watch a movie like that, you know on streaming by myself was not like a very enjoyable experience for a film that I thought was, you know, uh, all, all the right ingredients to be something that I would really like. And uh, again, what you were saying about Barbarian, like I watched that with my brother 
and you know we were laughing at the funny bits and it, you know it was just great company and i think even with a bunch of the flaws in that movie it played well to you know an audience of two but uh it, it still played well to us and i i think like that's the kind of film that would play well to an audience and would be fun to watch with an audience versus something that like is maybe a little bit better constructed or has a more satisfying ending or whatever that's interesting because I saw Barbarian in the theater, but completely alone. There was nobody in the theater. <laughs> I saw it. I did actually did something I haven't done in a long time, which is I snuck into a movie. I walked out of Confess Fletch and was like, fuck, that sucked. We can talk about about that later and barbarian was showing in the theater next door starting in five minutes so i just went into barbarian which i had also heard great things about and i i had a similar like oh, this sucks don't waste my fucking time and i wonder if i had seen it with anybody because for me it's tricks it's screenwriting tricks are extremely obvious and if you've heard about it oh, it's going to surprise you and you have any sense of anticipation of the surprises you can guess every single thing that's going to happen within four minutes of it because you've been told you're being set up to be surprised, right? So there's no way for it to work on you in any way. And it's just once, and it's like, you know, uh, you know, once they find the torture basement, there's just no question what this movie is going to be. And it fills in those checkmark boxes very, very um simple way. Again, it's a movie that I also think thematically and philosophically is very intent on telling its audience what it wants to hear. And I think there's something grotesque about the guy who made Miss March, which is one of the most um, repulsive, fart-swilling, demeaning sex comedies of its era. Uh, just a brutally unfunny, completely demeaning to women sex comedy. Turning around and making this sort of like Me Too light movie there's something that's that's gross about him getting away with it in some way. You know, he's sort of, I felt like with Midsummer, like the guy who made Midsummer is the dude from Midsummer. It feels like yeah. it was made by that dude. I felt the same way about Barbarian, where that movie feels like it was made by Justin Long's character. This guy who sort of says all of the right things and but is a fucking liar. Well, but I, is I a almost fucking wish liar. that like the I almost wish that the film had Justin Long get away with it at the end that he does the shitty thing and sacrifices it like and then gets away you know just to kind of underscore well, the but that would be like... that would be not telling the audience what it wants to hear I know I know you know but... and that movie in its bones it's it's as as determined to be a people pleaser as 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 a golden retriever you know what I mean it's just it just wants to tell the audience exactly what it wants to hear and I find that kind of horror cinema very very sort of boring so martin before we get back to you and you know if you feel changed still by the things you see uh that come out you know currently let me just ask you did you watch prey in the english or in the comanche that's one option you wouldn't get from a theater experience at least i, I watched it in english um but i would have watched it in the comanche if they if they actually filmed it in comanche instead of just dubbing it Dubbed like it. yeah for me that felt like a little bit like a cop-out you know and again like it's funny, people like when I mentioned, like, hey, they should have just filmed it in Comanche. Like, it, you know, <laughs> I saw people being like, well, like commercially, that would never make money. Like, Apocalypto made more money than like the last three Predator movies. Like, you got no arguments, <laughs> you know. Uh, and like, 
something about like the English just doesn't sound right for a lot of it. Like the dialogue, I thought like, like there's bits where Amber Midthunder just sounds like she's like the, the, the friend's sister at the mall. Like the, the dialogue sounded almost too contemporary or something. But anyway, yeah, sure. I didn't want to sure. like. More or less, more or less or contemporary than somebody in Apocalypto saying I'm walking here. Oh, that that's great. I love that. We talked about that before, but you know, like, but I, I think like that that contemporary quality, like if it's all, if it's all in the indigenous language, like you kind of buy it in a way that I think like everyone's speaking English has. It, like for me, it didn't quite work in Prey. There's something about that that, like I, I appreciate what they were going for, but. It didn't yeah. quite work. I thought that that's yeah. kind of my anyway. So that, sorry. That, I, so that wasn't that was an experience that changed you at all. But do you still get that feeling at all when you see new movies? As sometimes, I mean, it's definitely something I crave from movies. And every once in a while, you see something where it's like, oh, there's no going back after this. Or even something like, um, you know, this is a couple of years ago now. But like, I remember seeing the beach bum, and it just felt like this sort of unlikely film to get like a really strong uh, reaction to and great I'm experience defi watching. I'm definitely, and... definitely inclined to like root for unlikely movies that come out these <laughs> days for sure. Where you, you know, just have like a star power, like a, a Matthew McConaughey type who's like, I want to work with this weirdo and, you know, just <laughs> gets it funded. You know, I'm definitely, yeah. I'm in the boat for those things for sure. Um, I definitely need to make more like that. I, mean, I, I definitely crave the experience of seeing a movie that's going to transform me or change my perspective or any of that stuff uh you know I, I think like yeah some years you don't get any some years you might get two or three sometimes you discover older films that do that or sometimes it's a book or even a video game or something like that but uh, um are I, we I, going I to talk about, about are we going to talk about how elden ring didn't do it for you mr from software <laughs> And you're and you didn't like Game of the Year Elden Ring. No, um, <laughs> I, I liked it. Okay, I can't believe that I have never disliked a game more that I hundred percented than that game. And it was like, yeah. Anyway, not, not to get too sidetracked, but it's just like it, it's like when your your favorite band blows up with like an album that you're not that crazy about. And like yes, everyone's yes, into them all it's because it, like I love it's, like it's Dark from, Souls was like one of my favorite things ever, you know. But yeah, it's from Software's Combat Rock. I think we can both <laughs> agree on that. <laughs> um, no, I was thinking about this question about whether movies can change you because I I feel like a little disagree with you. I don't crave that experience anymore. I'm 43. I don't need to be changed by movies in that same way. Like I I know who I am. I don't need to be. To, to have my soul fundamentally altered by an artwork in that fundamental way. But I watched Truffaut's The Green Room, right? Is what my, got me thinking about this question. Because I had seen this movie when I was younger, when I was in my like completism phase with all of the, the French New Wave guys. So in like my late teens, early 20s kind of thing. And I I didn't get it. It's not necessarily that I disliked it. I was just sort of like, huh. And for those who don't know the plot, it's about a guy who's uh, a newspaper writer who's basically main talent is for obituaries. And he becomes so obsessed with his dead wife who died young that he builds like a shrine to her in one room of their house. 
and just becomes obsessed with preserving the memory of all the dead and sort of making the dead stay alive. It's a movie about living with death more than Alter any other. Alter to the dead. Yeah, Alter to the dead. Um, but if you see this movie when you're too young, if you haven't experienced death and loss, I don't think you can understand this movie. I don't think this movie can mean anything to you. You've got to know more of life for this movie to impact you. And it doesn't help that it it is a weirdly unpleasant movie. Truffaut himself stars in it and gives like a sort of unpleasant performance as this like unlovable death obsessed dude. And and it being one of his little loved, more sort of reviled movies, it, it's I understand it's hard to find a handle on it, but that is the kind of movie that has the ability to impact me. And I sort of, it's constantly, there's a lot of talk and we'll talk about it when we get into our best of year list, which I think we should do after I finish this rambling thing, is um, like about the death of middle class of cinema and, and that sort of thing and movies for adults and all of that. And I, I sort of agree when I think about a movie like The Green Room, this movie does not exist anymore. This kind of seriousness, maybe, maybe one of the movies on my my end of year list um, meets that level, gets to that level and is sort of a similar thought. But I do think that this is the kind of movie that when I think of like what's out there like that, there's nothing like this right now. Um, that's probably just because there's nobody like Truffaut, but I'm not thinking of Confess Fletch, you know, that kind or, or you know, John and I always make the jokes when you look at like the mid-budget movies from like 2004 to 2009 before Marvel started, it's like, you're really sad they don't make Welcome to Mooseport anymore? I, I, I you're know, really sorry that, 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 that like Krippendorf's tribe yeah. is gone, that they don't do those sort of you know, uh, adult leaning comedies. Oh, oh that, the when, evening, when you do the get evening a star. Confess Fletch. You have you have a bunch of people on Twitter who try to like guilt trip you into like, well, this is why we don't get movies for adults anymore. You didn't go and see Fletch confess. It's the it's Marvel a total... giant will totally consume Waking Ned Divine. <laughs> I know exactly, exactly. I'm just disappointed that there's no breakout hits like the Full Monty anymore. Like, get the <laughs> fuck out of my face. <laughs> this stuff like I, I just think it's i think a lot of again when we talk about the the film discourse a lot of it is very childish fantasy land stuff it all feels very immature to me it doesn't feel like you're in the presence of a bunch of serious thinkers uh and and having very you know deep thoughts it feels like a bunch of people who really are worked up uh, in those sort of like middle schoolish you know i always think the anti-marvel people they remind me of when you're in like seventh grade and there's the dudes who just hate the boy bands so much they're not real music. That's what all of the anti-Marvel people remind me of is like eighth graders who are just so mad at new kids on the block. Just, just so, so mad at the existence of NSYNC, you know, and, and Justin Bieber. They're just foaming at the mouth. It's the same thing, but it's like these 45-year-olds acting that way. And it just feels like, how can you, how can you not be ashamed to be one of the anti-Marvel people? It's literally a humiliation and lack 
lacking in dignity to be one of those people who's so upset about it. And it ties into, I think, that those are then the same people who come out and are like, you should watch Confessed Fletch. And it's like, oh, you have terrible taste. You you have no personality. You have no understanding of the world or reality. You have bad taste. That explains that, you know? Well, I, I still think it's like ridiculous. You have people who are like vehemently like anti-superhero movie and then they turn around and tell you that like RRR is the best thing they saw this year and it's like oh that's a film that takes all the things I like least about like big Hollywood cinema and crams <laughs> it into this movie and then people seem to like it I guess but yeah it's I don't it's, know it's strange it's strange let's move on from from film twitter trolls sure. hopefully we won't mention that anymore <laughs> apparently they consume my thoughts and my everyday being <laughs> unless unless it's relevant to bring them up again i'm not gonna make any rules here uh but let me let me be the first to, to throw out a movie i love from last year uh just because we brought up a few times uh being able to engage with old cinema you know and traditional stuff and the old the old good good structure of a classic hollywood film because this film works mainly from tapping into that vein you know and i was completely blown away by it. I should have watched it again before we talked about it, but I've got a chance to. But it's Decision to Leave, uh, which is Park Chang uh, Wook's movie. It's, uh, you know, I don't want to even talk about it too much because there is such a great tapestry of plot to kind of work through in it. But it's a, you know, basically it's this murder mystery set in Busan. The second half is um, uh, best in, uh, set in, in Naipo. And it just has like these great ingredients of like a, great golden Hollywood era movie without being some kind of pastiche where you're just like, okay, yeah, I get what you're doing here because it's still super inventive and surprising and uses modern things like cell phones, you know, as like an interesting cinematic gimmick. That is impossible to me to make a, a cell phone or a computer screen, a laptop interesting aesthetically in film, but like he does it in this film. Like he, he makes everything. And, and it's not just, you know, that it's not just like his interesting interiors and his interesting technology. It's like he gets out into the world and there are all these elemental things about it. One of the exciting things for me about this movie is that people have debated, you know, whether uh, her dress is blue or green in the film. To me, it's like, you know, did she run over a dog or a little boy in the headless woman? Like, this is the kind of like discourse I could get behind, you know, like this is the kind of interesting thing. These are interesting ambiguities. Like these are artistic choices that I can really respect. It's got epic scope. It's got intimacy. It's got an incredible, incredibly performance by Tang Wei, who is just, I mean, uh, just a siren on the screen, just in the just in the traditional sense. Like she's a Barbara Stanwyck type. She's so intriguing every time she shows up, um, and it's funny. It's just, it just every, there's, there's nothing about this movie I didn't like. Uh, it's definitely the best film I saw, Toronto, and it's just I when I walked out, I thought, you know, well, nothing this year is gonna match this kind of, you know, not committing or anything. But I don't think anything did. I think just objectively. It's just a film that really just hit all the right, just checked all the right, you know, um, uh, all the right spots for me and just like it was so fucking great that I just was not changed by it, but, you know, came out of it completely, you know, exhilarated and like, I'm ready. Cinema, give me what you got. Like, like films like this are what I want to see. Uh, the, the love of cinema is just infused into this thing, just runs through its body. And at the same time, it's something completely new. You know, it's nothing that feels uh, hacky, you know, and it's it's great. I loved it. Have you guys seen this one? Yeah, it's I, I think you said it perfectly. 
Yeah, I think this might be there's I think there's another movie you and I are going to talk about, John. I have no idea if Martin likes it, that are the like critical agreement consensus movies that we also agree with that people are right. Decision to leave is fucking great. You know, it happens sometimes. It's <laughs> you saw it at you saw it at Tiff and I'd been skeptical because he's been so variable. You know, he basically has old boy and a bunch of other stuff that is of variable quality that has very high peaks within it. And The Handmaiden, The Handmaiden, of course, is very good. But but even within his individuals, they have very high peaks and very low lows and a very uh, uh, lumpen filmography. And so when you were like, go see it, it's great. I went and, and saw it on a date and fucking loved it. It was good. I, I was glad because, and I probably wouldn't have seen it except for your recommendation, John. I probably would have skipped it because I just, like I said last year, I just don't see a lot now. I just, there's movies that I would see that I, that I don't normally see. And unless you basically, one of you two tells me to go see it or Tony Stella, I won't, I won't go see it. David Lambert also, if he says, but yeah. he doesn't watch any movies made after 1994. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I like when you uh, tweeted at me when I was watching the episode of uh, She-Hulk I'll, I think he said, like, I'll only watch this if you tell me to. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I've, I've heard enough about it that I'm glad you didn't tell me to watch it. I, I've I, heard... I, I love the comics, but I couldn't make it past the first episode. I was, I like, was having a, I was having I, I a, gotta... I was having breakfast with Marcus Penn yesterday, and he had some extremely negative things to say about it that made it sound like, oh, this is not for me. So, <laughs> well, speak, since you brought up She Hawk, I just have to say, uh, more to the point of this being like a sequel to what we talked about last year when we praised the Suicide Squad. This year started off with Peacemaker, the James Gunn series, and that just blew my nipples off. I freaking loved it. And it was, you know, that was like an artwork I engaged with, I feel like, more than I did like things on the big screen this year. Like that was just like a great start. I will not hear anything bad say about, said about James Gunn until he gives me reason to. I really won't because I just think he is constantly surprising and constantly brings like you know steps up in the game and, and park does as well in, in decision to leave like it's not like his previous films i also really like the handmaid and sure old boy sympathy for mr vengeance whatever they're all perfectly entertaining but he's never stepped it up to this level where it just feels like every decision is like an interesting and uh elevated one you know so. it's funny you mentioned peacemaker i also loved peacemaker i haven't watched a tv show like it comes out today i'm watching the new episode since high school like this i was mm -hmm. thinking it's like the simpsons uh like season seven i think was the last time i've watched a show like it's coming out today i gotta be there and watch it um and Peacemaker, I did that. I really enjoyed that. I, I don't know if I'd, I'd uh, you know, it's a show that like, it's goofy and lowbrow, so I don't want to overpraise it in some way. But I definitely really, really enjoyed that too. Certainly there's, not as much as Decision to Leave. That have a real yeah. emotional punch in Peacemaker. And even like, like I love the Suicide Squad, but even when I heard, oh, they're, they're going to make a Peacemaker show, I was like, oh, you're going to take like the... Yeah, the, the most the, detestable character. The worst character from that movie. The, the most, like, I guess, you know, like the only one of the main group that's really irredeemable and you're going to make a show around it. And it worked. It worked completely. And it's, um, yeah, no, there, there were a couple of television shows I enjoyed this year that 
might be the best. There's one other I, I definitely want to bring up, but the fact that Peacemaker, you know, the whole idea is to like let's work on, let's work around that, let, let, not not around it, but let's work on that. Let's make that the focus of the show is how detestable this guy is. Can I make him likable? You know, I mean, that's just an incredible thing. To I, I feel well, like it's that's actually a, it's like, always been yeah in, interested in is is exploring people who are kind of like beyond the pale and uh you know well, it, in a way it reminded yeah. me a lot of like his uh his film super from a couple of years ago which you know it's a it's a superhero movie but it, it's much more grungy and morally ambiguous and it, it kind of gets into that ter- territory a little bit with peacemaker which i i really liked you know and i love the the guardians of the galaxy movies but i think like something about <laughs> maybe it's just the the language being able to swear and stuff like that it, it feels like a little bit more like um, James Gunn's completely just free to make something the way he wants and uh, yeah I, I thought Peacemaker was fantastic actually yeah. and it also yeah. takes on a really big theme of the legacy of white supremacy and law enforcement and covert US activity which is like a serious topic to smuggle into a show like that that what is the relationship if you're trying to be a do-gooder in the American sense of you know the flag and and law enforcement and, and world police and what that actually is tied to you know with the character with his father's character the history of of sort of actual white supremacist covert activity that's that's a big it's like a nice meaty theme and he doesn't step on it too much he just puts it in there i i think that it's i think that it's a very interesting movie i think it's as our tv show i think it's as interesting as pop can get and i think pop can get quite interesting so martin what's your first pick on your list is it going to be something that we detest is it going to be uh, triangle of sadness or I'll, I'll pick something maybe you guys might detest um orphan first kill <laughs> Uh, I like you it. you got the wrong guys. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be in critical consensus again right. on this one. I, I don't I don't know how well like this was this year, but I, I think like there were a lot of really notable horror films that came out this year, and for me, this one just worked surprisingly well. Uh, I was kind of expecting just to get the first film again that, oh, it's going to be a prequel and she's going to do the same thing with a different family. And it didn't turn out that way. It, it, like, I think in terms of films that have some kind of a twist or put a spin on what you expect, like this one actually kind of worked for me. And I think the fact that the actress, Isabel Furman, uh, like she was a child playing an adult, playing a child in the first movie. And now she's an actual adult. And there's something, I think a little bit, more fun in seeing an adult playing that performance as a child and like something about that actually really worked for me and you know it's you you can kind of tell the budget is not very large on this and like William Brent Bell I don't know if I've even really liked anything he's made before but for me like everything just kind of came together and it's like oh that was a really good follow-up <laughs> I, I I didn't realize uh, how much time had passed since the first film I, I think like I was talking with you John on Twitter where you pointed out like oh that the amount of time that's passed in between the first film and this it's like more than the age of the or the supposed age of the character <laughs> but uh yeah no like I, I think like in terms of some of the big horror stuff like there were a few that were obviously like bigger budget more impressive but I felt like a little bit less 
satisfy or there was stuff like terrifier 2 which i i completely get the appeal of but just wasn't to my taste you know like i'm not a gore hound i'm not that kind of person but this was a horror film that i just really enjoyed and i'm probably going to watch again it's big twist rocked my socks man i love it's good right like i'm like oh like this this talk about unpredictable twist too (laughs) it's i don't think yeah Sorry to interrupt, John. No, yeah, just the idea. I mean, like you said, I expect it to be sort of like a stepfather two situation where it's going to be like same movie, slightly different people, you know, a, a yep. son instead of a daughter type situation. But the fact that it turns it into like a VC Andrews movie, sudden like, like just like pivots into a VC Andrews territory, like in the middle of it, I I loved it. That was perfect. That was such a great and uh, interesting idea. So that that, that totally worked for me. It's funny you mentioned the. This was a notable year for horror movies. I feel like there was like a, like a half dozen to maybe a dozen new cult classics that sort of happened this year, and I was surprised. Some of them I liked, like this one and Smile. I I thought both were were good, but a lot of the like big time horror movies I just didn't connect with at all uh, to some varying degree of. I think this is bad or. Yeah, this is not interesting. And from, you know, like bodies, 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 barbarian, nope, we're all going to the World's Fair, Mad God and Terrifier 2. Yeah. I did feel like a lot of um, this is not doing it. I remember telling I, you my, my theory about nope. Um, yeah, before it came out. I thought like, there's no way it's just going to be a flying saucer movie. I'm like, he's got to put some spin on it. I thought it was going to be like his rubber and have it be about a giant killer cowboy hat yeah and like you know that from the trailer like it almost looks like a cowboy hat in some yeah. shots because they don't really give it away and it's like oh it's about this um family who like played a role in the film industry but was like moved to the margins yeah. and the cowboy hat's going to be like the the symbol of the the western genre the john wayne yeah. exclusive racist and like I, I built up the, this like movie in my head, which was not the film that came out at all. But have I have I told you theory? That's, that's about, da- have that's I told da- you my dangerous. my my theory about him, which is that he writes his scripts without knowing. He gets the idea for the hook and starts writing without knowing what the second half is going to be, because all of his movies, the second half is markedly worse than the first half yeah. I, I think markedly less interesting pulls us, it off because it's got enough momentum going it but i think us and nope they they fall apart by the end uh, us is a disaster in the uh, second us, half this yeah. one is just generic this one yes. just becomes like there's a monster we gotta trap it you know it becomes jaws it becomes predator it just becomes all of that which when there's so much insistent weirdness and misdirection in the first half it puts an emphasis okay on like oh you've misdirected me you fooled me over and over what is the reveal and if the reveal is it's a ship that eats people you go oh well what are you going to do we're going to catch it you know okay well that you know fair enough you know that that kind of thing i think is um i think is is inherently dissatisfying me is like for um for somebody who's has a background in sketch comedy I'm shocked that Jordan Peele is so like adverse to the irrational. Like I thought like us would have worked so much better if it was just this like irrational, like, Oh, some doppelgangers show up and that's the story. And there's no need to explain it. And it's just this sort of horror scenario. That's like, if it was like, if it was like a Wojcik Haas movie, it'd be amazing. That that would be fantastic. Same thing with Nope. If it was, uh, 
this like unexplainable thing, you know, I'm not saying it had to be a, a giant cowboy hat, but like, you know, you, you would expect there would be more absurdity and irrationality in his movies. And he feels the need to kind of like explain himself in ground things in a way that like, I, I think actually does a disservice to his premise. It, it prevents him from being one of the truly interesting horror directors, you know, that, that um, he's obviously very interesting. I don't want to, shit too much on him in some way but i think it i think it's what keeps him from being look it makes sense. he's an entertainer who makes hollywood movies and not a real artist and i think that that's a fair distinction to make as unpopular as it is and um you know go for it but if for, you're talking me, about them critically and seriously you have to sort of pump the brakes in some way for me, if he wants to cast Keith David and bring Michael Wincott out of retirement, he can keep <laughs> making movies as long as he wants. It's funny because I, I I didn't even think of Orphan too much as one of the horror movies of this year. I thought of it more as like that group of like kind of legacy sequels or remakes along with Prey, Hellraiser, even Beavis and Butthead do the universe, you know, yeah. or the Chucky TV show. Jackass. That had its seasons. Yeah, Jackass, exactly. That I loved. I had so much fun with all of these movies uh, as much as like philosophically, I feel like, uh, stop with all this like you know ip retrend you know we don't need like great new stuff like we want to hear yeah but you works. but it's but like that's but also stuff a, is so great and fun that's a canard to the whole like they only do sequels and intellectual properties you and i were just discussing how they made what was it 16 andy hardy movies between 1937 <laughs> and 1942 like this is the way it is you know right. like it's just this is this is the way the it's course. always been you know <laughs> there's a billion gay falcon movies you know what i mean like it's just it's oh my the way god it's King been. Kong's a hit. How, he's got a son. Get it out before the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Turn out Planet of the Apes movies until they won't <laughs> let us anymore. Absolutely. But yeah, but 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 this year in particular, I just felt like, wow, all these films that are like, eh, the 40-year-old people will love this one. I loved it. You got it. <laughs> you got me. You know? Well, but I was also thinking with horror movies, what I really felt like this year when I when I watched something like We Are Going to the World's Fair or Terrifier 2, horror is such a young person's genre that I watch these movies and I feel like I've, I've seen this before. I know what this is about. This isn't blowing my mind. But I can imagine being... 17 and seeing either of those movies and be like holy fucking shit like you just <laughs> kicked my balls in with this movie like i really can and i think horror more than a lot of genres um really is a young person's genre i think because it's not necessarily because it's formulaic well maybe a little bit this is maybe this is like what we were talking about on the swishbucklers episode if it becomes too good is it no longer a swishbuckler if a, if a horror movie's too original and inventive it sort of moves its way out of the genre and become something else. I think if a movie gets too weird, it's no longer a horror movie anymore. You know, that that's why somebody like Zulowski doesn't really make horror movies, you know, because they're just too weird. They move out of the genre, the weirder and more original they get. I was watching Herzog's Nosferatu this year, which is so phenomenally good. And you watch it and you're like, is this even a horror movie? This is the most, one of the most direct and faithful adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I don't even feel like I'm watching watching a horror movie though you know the one thing i will say since you brought up world's fair though the scene in the middle of the movie where she does the, like the tiktok dance um she's like this dowdy you know girl and suddenly she's doing this weird like tiktok dance to a pop song and like screams in the middle of it and it's this kind of weird moment 
I at least like that better than Mia Goss' monologue at the end of Pearl. I'll say that. <laughs> well, Pearl and X did nothing for me. Those, those yeah. are. This is when I talk about all the time about just being out of touch. Like I just, those were two movies. That's like it's not even that I liked or disliked them. I just, I just don't even get what people are responding to in them. I just don't even get it. You know. I mean, even the, yeah. the like the commentary about celebrity and like stardom in Pearl, like it feels like. Is that even still relevant? <laughs> like, do we even still really have stars? I know that was like a big conversation this year, but it, you know, it, it felt for me like uh, I, like you said, I didn't really get much out of uh, X or or Pearl. I thought they were like all right, but and you know, Ty West is somebody who I like root for, I guess, but I didn't get much. I out think of that's it, though. Film. I think I think he's somebody that a certain class of cinephile really roots for, for some reason. And that's my reaction to his movies. A lot of the time is, is people want this to be better than it is. People want yeah. these to be more interesting. They want him to be a more talented filmmaker. And I have no idea why that is. He's got Martin Scorsese on board. Martin Scorsese is one of those guys who, who thinks he's, you know, the bee's knees, meaning he's very tiny and covered in pollen. <laughs> And, and I'll just say this last thing and immediately cut myself off so I don't have to go on from it. I kind of liked Halloween Ends until the end. Chris, what is your first pick for your movie you enjoyed this year? Uh, I, you and I are on board with with Halloween Ends being uh, uh, at least interesting. Finally, yeah. after three of them, at least, at least going for it's, something. It, it's a good movie, except for Michael Myers and Jimmy Lee Curtis. <laughs> Like very tacked. Things tacked. that were good about it weren't weren't the Halloween parts. Like when, very, when it turns very into tacked, like very tacked on, very tacked I, on. I, it. I, it's it's like David Gordon Green wanted to make a, a completely different movie, and he's like, oh, I guess I got to make a third Halloween. Yeah, no, it's like he did, was going to make a, a movie existing in the Prince Avalanche world, and it turned out to be the latest Halloween. That's really what that movie feels like. <laughs> it's true. It's part of the DGG verse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, my first pick, I'm not going to pick one that I think any of you guys are, are going to pick, which is this is one you and I saw at Toronto, John, that I really love that affected me a lot. It's called Self-Portrait as a Coffee Pot, which is about the artist William Kentridge. He's a South African artist who works in charcoal. He does these very interesting charcoal animations. He also does these sort of like like space installation space type animations that mix like a real space, like a bathroom set with like the um, uh, uh, mirror, the medicine cabinet mirror will be animated and you go and stand in this bathroom and it's a beautiful charcoal animation. And it's charcoal, so it sort of leaves impressions of what was there before it. He's a really great artist. I, I don't know where I first saw him. I saw an exhibit of his work in New York like 20 years ago. He's somebody who's probably, who gets, he's one of those artists who gets claimed by the fine arts world and I feel like has no profile in sort of the film world. Like film Twitter people, despite him being almost definitely the greatest um, independent animator of this century, I, th I think that I think very few people who know his work would argue, oh, there's somebody, an independent animator who's better than him. Um, 
I, I, he's not known and sort of like the film Twitter world would have no fucking clue who he is. They've never heard of William Kentridge. And so this movie, as mentioned, it's a self-portrait. It's an autobiographical film. And the best way I can describe it is, is it's a, uh, a um, it's a sort of a melange. It's sort of a midway point between Mystery of Picasso, the Clouseau film that's all about process and watching him in his studio make art and the um, weird PR promo material that David Byrne made for stop making sense where he's interviewing himself and like wacky hairdos and dressed up talk about jonathan demi what do you think of his hairdos um that that kind of stuff because he like interviews himself he like it's it's sort of like he even does like the marx brothers routine of seeing himself in the mirror you know the two versions of him and it's like a, a funny touching brilliant weird movie it's sort of one of those like you watch it and it feels like this is one of the ultimate like covid movies like a guy just an older man trapped in his house who sort of is losing connection to the world sort of losing his mind a little bit still trying to make art when he's been severed from culture around him in some fundamental way and I just thought it was really funny and charming and interesting and just just beautiful and neat. It's very modest. You know, it's a it's a sort of modest movie in that it is just him in his in his studio talking about old paintings and his process and his philosophy and watching him work and things like that. But at the same time, I, I really thought it was brilliant. It's certainly a movie I've thought about more probably than any other movie I've seen this year. It's one of those movies, if you're an artist and you see it, you'll 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 spend a lot of time with it in that way. You'll mentally spend a lot of time with it. Yeah. I, somebody put up a Twitter poll of like, who is the best duo in a film this year? And my response was, you know, a picture of William Kentridge with William Kentridge in this movie, which of course nobody responded to because no one knows who the fuck that is. But since we didn't do a follow-up episode to uh, TIFF this year, I can formally say, Chris, I'm so excited that you introduced me to this artist in this movie. You know, it was one that you had picked out before we went to see it and said it was one you were excited about. So I'm so excited to have him in my life now and like, you know, go back to his old uh, monographs and uh, some of his old films and everything and his old animations. And it's uh, he really is like just such a unique character. And just looking around his studio, just getting that access to like the objects around everything, because the subtitle, I think, is like the object and its unreliable witnesses. Just how <laughs> like that all like kind of makes up you know not only his art but like who he is like him as a person um is something that i don't think i got from any other film this year and it's and it's fun to see him acting like this very serious thoughtful uh pretentious but knowing he's pushing that line kind of artist being goofy you know what i mean there's something about it that feels like he's really uh, funny yeah, like, yeah, there's just something about it that feels like this is such a beautiful expression of an extremely interesting artist inner life. And he is silly at times while serious and, and beautiful and poetic. It was it really, it really moved me. Martin, I'm assuming you haven't seen it. Did you no, know who I, William I Kentridge you, is? Well, I remember you talking about it before you might have even mentioned it to me in conversation when we were talking about Errol Morris films, but um I just haven't had a chance to see it yet. I definitely want to. And like, you know, mysteries of mystery of Picasso. It's um, that's a film I keep coming back to doing uh, like documentary work for art galleries and stuff like that. It's uh, I'm interested in things like that. So I'll definitely watch it as uh, as soon as I get a chance. Yeah, I hope it comes out on Canopy or something so people can have access yeah, I, to it. Because I, I think like as soon as it's on streaming, I'll I'll watch it. Yeah, but, yeah. 
So my next pick is the one I was talking about when I said, like, here's just like a chance to like bask in like uh, a very specific artistic voice and like get pumped at like just the original ideas behind this. And it's a film called um, Das Mädchen und die Spine, which is the girl and the spider um, by two brothers whose names I'm going to look up right now. Uh, Jason and Travis Kelsey. <laughs> uh, made by the the Zercher brothers, Ramon and Sylvan, who are well, only Ramon actually directed this movie eight years ago called The Strange Little Cat. That uh, oh, oh this is that guy. Yeah, this is the him and his brother. Uh, oh, do you know Strange Little Cat, Martin? You, I don't think I've seen it. It's it's like he was Bellatar's student and was encouraged to make a movie, and it's like this adorably like. I don't even know how to say it. it's it's a lot of things get described as like a live action cartoon. It's sort of like amusing vignettes, gentle. It's a really unique movie. Wow. I didn't okay. know fucking anything about this. Strange little cat is, is fucking. Uh, I didn't know it was the same guys. I went into, you know, but five minutes into this, you're like, Oh, I know who this is. I recognize this <laughs> because it's the exact same style of that film. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be part of a trilogy, I guess that they're working yeah. on, which hopefully won't take them eight years to make another one. But uh, this one is even better. Uh, this one just like has such interesting and like uh, intimate ideas about human relationships and about form, you know, about cinematic form, about, you know, where characters should be has such insightful and thoughtful redundancies and just invigorating thoughts. I mean, it's, it's amazing just like uh, Strange Little Cat to see every character on the exact same tonal plane the entire movie, <laughs> even though even every character clearly has something going on, you know? And I won't, don't want to say it's Personian exactly, but there's something like that where it's like huge moments and like petty moments exist on the same plane, you know, like everything kind of is on the same line. And, it's a and testament it's to to his unique tone is that I just compared him to Chuck Jones and you compared him to Brisson and we're both right. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's Chuck Jones in this movie. There are a lot of animals in this movie that reminded me of like an animal you would see in a Looney Tunes movie, honestly. <laughs> um, it's so great. And the plot is literally uh, a lady's moving out of her apartment. That's literally the plot of this movie. <laughs> And it's just, you know, you just meet these different characters and become involved in like their lives for like a you know short amount of time. And it was funny because I had this very specific thought watching this film of like, this film is just gets it that you don't need like a thunderstorm to suddenly happen in your film or your play or whatever to create a dramatic effect. And in the middle of the movie, there is a thunderstorm. And then the most unexpected, crazy fucking thing happens in the movie. <laughs> And it's like, wow, they realize that too, that like, we're going to like, if we're going to do something that's big, we're going to make it huge and you're not going to expect it at all. Uh, so there's just, oh my God, I want to watch this movie again so quick, so soon. There's just so much to like appreciate about this film. And these guys have just an amazing artistic voice. And I'm just so glad that they they made something else because Strange Little Cat was really a good movie. Yeah, Strange Little Cat is a movie that that when I wrote about it, I talked about like it's definitely one of those movies that you want to enthusiastically recommend to people, but at the same time, its modesty can be crushed by a recommendation. It is what you say, just like very simple. You don't you don't need the green screen sound stage cast of thousands. Just like it's a movie you watch and you're like, I, I could have done this in my house. He, they did this in their house is what it feels like. And it's got that kind of essential modesty to it. But there is the 
Strange Little Cat's definitely a movie that on the years has grown over me. There's an excitement to it, you know, especially now that like big towering pulverizing genius is not particularly interesting to me. Sort of like uh, elusive, strange little outsider art weirdness is interesting to me. I'm very excited for this job. Yeah, that modesty is the same. It, It carries over to this film as well, where it feels like uh you know obviously completely stripped down but at the same time something you couldn't do you know like it's like a voice that you couldn't have you know and that insights you're never going to get unless you experience this movie so uh i was this was actually like a a real cleanser for me after lots and lots of bad movies you know you do my usual thing where like oh what movies did i miss this year that i should maybe talk about and bad 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 movie and then this one and it's like god damn it awesome awesome (laughs) lends my cinema palette perfect (laughs) So I couldn't recommend it higher, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm sure you could definitely overpraise a film like this, but like this one, even more than Strange Little Cat feels like people should see it. And uh, Martin, what's your next choice? I'm assuming if you want to chime in on on another one you haven't seen uh, and aren't familiar <laughs> with, but or we can uh, jump right into your next. Well, uh, speaking of films that you think like, oh, this could have been shot right here. Um, one film I really liked this year was The Trip by uh, Tommy Vercola who um, I haven't seen his new Santa Claus, David Harbour movie, but uh, I guess that's out. But um, it's the same director who did uh, Dead Snow and What Happened to Monday and uh, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunter. And this was like a much more low-key film. It's Nobel Rapace. And um, it's about uh, her and her husband want to murder each other. And like most of it's just in this tiny little cabin and uh i i think like for me the the dark sense of humor worked really well um and like again there's just that appeal of like i'm, I'm kind of stuck in a cabin myself and thinking like oh like, what could what could i make here and like <laughs> who it, could it i kill to watch <laughs> you know, something that kind of worked on that level um yeah it's very funny it has the dark sense of humor i i think it works I don't, he might be one of those filmmakers where I think like his humor kind of comes through uh, better in um, I think it's Norwegian than in his English language stuff. And Nomi Rapace, like I, I kind of like that she's got this whole direct-to-video <laughs> career going on that seems to be going like under the radar for a lot of people, but she's doing like very physical roles like um, Black Crab and like I, I feel like she's in probably about a dozen netflix movies that people just don't talk about but she's she's fantastic and i really like her her expressiveness her physicality um again like it's the same director who did uh, what happened on monday which is kind of just like a almost like a big acting reel for nomi rapes where she plays um a bunch of different characters in that but uh yeah no i, I really like this it, this was just like a great kind of throw it on enjoy it movie for me it's uh fun yeah. fun little movie i happen <laughs> that, to do like, that's great very... I, I, I miss this one yes yeah, so i'll watch this one tonight i happen to do this on a very strange double feature i watched this the same day as satra gitry's the poison with michelle simon <laughs> which is also about a couple that wants to kill each other just very i sort of randomly selected both of them i was like ah such a gitchery there's a surely he must have one that i like i've seen so many of them and <laughs> surely there must be one that really blows me away and uh and i 
watched them both on the same day and I was like, this is a this is actually a really excellent double feature. And I'm a, a Numi Rapace super fan. She's somebody all the time. I just I stop and think and I actually have the thought like she should have Rooney Mara's career. I feel like it's an obvious comparison, but like she she got her valor stolen it, it, somehow. It's still kind of crazy that like that they and... remade first of all that that they remade a Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in English and like didn't Americanize it. But the yeah. fact that like normally she's right there, like just put her in the American version. And she's so uh, much better. She's such a yeah. phenomenal actress. I'm really a super fan of her work. Really, really love her. And exactly what you say, all of these movies, she's just in a billion movies. And you can, if you're like, I'm in the mood for Numi Rapace, you just find one and put it on. I, I do the same thing, but I definitely feel like, ah, oh God, the alien movie she's in, there was a moment where it seemed like she was going to get to I, shoot I think her shot. that kind of killed it, where, like... I think the one with her and Isabel yeah. Huppert, like the big budget action movie that she yeah. did, that I think that's what killed it. I think that that she sort of got her shot with the girl with the dragon tattoo guy in Hollywood and made this movie that I can't even remember the title of and nobody remembers. And uh, I think that's what killed it for her. But she's she's one of those people that just feels like she should be all of these people they're putting in Hollywood movies, take her out. She's a real star. She's a real actress. She she's she's doing she's the, got it. the kinds of movies that are like the sort of direct-to-video action, science fiction, high-concept kind of whatever movies that um, don't usually have somebody who you feel like should be a big star or have the charisma that she does. So, like, I, I think even in, in some of the movies that I don't necessarily think are, like, as great, like Black Crab, uh, she's fantastic in them. It, it makes them exciting to watch, even if, even if the film itself feels like a little... Uh, fine you know yeah and even <laughs> yeah. the trip i would say is like it's a little it's yeah fine. It, it, it's, it's, it's a little it's a fine but it's just like it's enjoyable it's you know? better than the ref <laughs> how many movies can you say that about this year that like oh i really enjoyed that i i would watch that again when i'm you know like i'll put that on in the background while i'm doing something else and yeah no it, like also just being cooped up like not that i think about murdering anyone but it's a fun concept it's a fun movie i feel like that's one thing that tommy Bercola is is good at is just like eh, maybe the movie's not that great but it's fun you know yeah absolutely absolutely well my next pick i'm going to pick another movie i saw at toronto that martin you're going to say i haven't heard of that one is going to be my guess um it's the woman i kept seeing at the convenience store, Claudia St. Lucie. She was going to the same corner store as me. I'm 90% certain. And I wanted to say, I really loved your movie, The Empty Box. Um, she has a new movie called Love and Mathematics, which is about a guy who used to be in a boy band who's sort of settled into a, in Mexico, into like a very modest upper middle class existence, somewhere between upper middle class and actual upper class existence and like a gated community and him just sort of being miserable with his domestic life, being like a stay at home uh, dad and reluctant dog father who just has like nothing to do but play video games all day. And his next door neighbor, the new neighbors, she's a woman who turns out to be like a super fan of his boy band when she was young. And they have like... 
they sort of enter into an affair of the heart and she encourages him to like go to the local coffee shop open mic and perform his new songs and um this sounds like cutesy american independent romantic comedy sort of quirk thing and it's not it's extremely fucking dark it has the best joke you will ever see about a dog being killed uh it's it's uh it's it's a very <laughs> and then lying about a dog being killed is delightful great scene of them out searching for the dog that he knows is dead squeaking its toys and and trying to find the dead dog it's um she's a real fucking filmmaker and it's sort of an outrage that people aren't lining up to um to to say this is this is one of the new international talents. She's a really really talented filmmaker, and people should be should be uh, honking that horn more and singing her praises more. This is a much much more modest movie than The Empty Box. The Empty Box is a real powerhouse. It's it's a real I, knockout. Um, and this one I is did very... see The Empty Box. I I, yeah. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. This one's very modest. It's mainly in this neighborhood. Again, it, uh, the theme of it has a bit of feeling of a COVID film of what can I do with like a handful of people in a very small location? It feels like it has a very modest budget and she really brings all she can out of it. And then, you know, it's perfect. It's one of those things nailing his original song that he performs, Love and Mathematics, right? To write a song that's perfect, that's both conceivably good and catchy but also not good enough in a funny way and but also completely like you're pumping your fist just like cheering this dude on finally it, it they fucking nail it and it's really hard to do you know to 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 nail that tone in a way i saw it on i think the same day we saw the weird owl movie uh, which was like oh they don't nail the tone of this at all that's relationship to the comedy and the music this tone is completely flat and seeing this movie was like they should have had her direct the fucking weird owl movie it would have been a masterpiece yeah, there there definitely aren't enough films like this that like tackle the post fame life of people. You know, someone who's had like some small level of fame and then that's it. You know, and then just becomes a regular person again. <laughs> uh, like all I can think of is like the wrestler. Maybe you know is like you know yeah. the kind of film that does that. But uh, it's a cool theme, and this is a really great movie. Uh, you know, it's funny. Wendy Mays showed like a lifetime Christmas movie as part of her like holiday um, you know uh, spree of films that she showed. And it has almost the exact same plot of like a guy who used to be a guitar player and finds love with a woman who turns out to be Santa's daughter. And <laughs> I, it's, it's absurd, but like she, it, it, it inspires him to pick up the guitar again. And he does this song that is so fucking terrible. And so it really made me appreciate like what exactly what you were saying, like Love and Mathematics having like the perfect kind of song and not just half-assing and doing some absurd piece of shit like this guy does and you're supposed to think like oh he's really good as opposed to like oh my god i want to tear my brains out this is a horrible fucking thing i'm watching yeah it's perfect in the sense that you don't think wow he's he's all of his years of talent has been wasted you feel like this is not 
good enough, but it's also not ridiculous. And it could have been a hit. It would have been not a hit. It would have been like the eighth best album on uh, eighth best song on that album. You know what I mean? But right, it would have deserved yeah. to be on the album. It would, it would have completely been, deserved to be on the album. It would have been track know? nine or 11, depending on how long the album is. <laughs> exactly. And it, but you wouldn't have been like, why is this on the album? Why did they record this? It would have been like, this is a, this is a lesser new kids on the block song, but completely <laughs> legitimate you know this isn't this isn't going to be the hit maybe they'll sneak it onto the soundtrack of some high school theme movie about a math teacher falling in love but <laughs> it's uh you know it's it's good there's another song we'll talk about in one of my other best of the year picks that i'm sure is one of your the best of the year picks too and i felt like this is this is a twin song with that one of where they really need a specific tone and nail it yeah, but great movie and another one that just all her whole her entire filmography I hope becomes more available to people because she is she's a good filmmaker, really good. Yeah, filmmaker. yeah, always there with her boyfriend in the corner store, having me have. And if it wasn't her, there's some woman who was in the corner store all the time who had me looking at her real close, trying to tell if it was her. Real Chris, close, over and over. It was like six times. Chris, stop stalking this woman, please. <laughs> I I regret not bothering this person in the store and saying I really <laughs> like your movies. I think it, I'm just not sure it was this 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 person. I've only seen the one movie with her, and then in the audience uh, uh, at Empty Box there. But John, what is your next pick, Martin? Did you oh, want to yeah, say Martin. anything about it? Yet another movie you haven't seen. I, I'll I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the empty box. Well, I'll see it eventually. I just like I'm I haven't you, been to any you festivals to see the empty this year. It's so, not an easy yeah. movie to see, so that's good. Yeah, circa 2017, I was still going to movie festivals. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I refused to shut up about how great this movie was and what a great experience it was to see it three times in the theater. Yeah, uh, absolutely Woo! loved it. And I won't shut up. And I don't care how many Twitter people tell me to. Here, there we go. We're talking about Twitter again. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Sam Raimi back. Made a movie like a Sam Raimi movie that kicked ass and just made the theater explode with joy. I love it. I don't know whether what else there's to say. We, we already did do a podcast on it, but it's just so much fun. It gets more fun the more I see it. This is how entertainment should be. I actually said last year in our year-end thing, we didn't know how bad it was until Sam Raimi left us, you know, before he didn't he stopped making movies like, you know, and as soon as he's back, we're reminded this is it. This is what we this is what we're missing. This is popcorn film. This is fun and excitement and innovation of the level that I want to see everybody working on. Everyone should go on to set with in a suit like Sam Raimi and say to themselves, <laughs> I've got to go Sam Raimi level here. I don't care what movie I'm working on, what piece of shit this is. I've got to bring Sam Raimi level of greatness to this. And that is what this is, is 100% Sam Raimi level greatness. I love it. So it's a good unit. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is one, the other thing just to talk about the, the backlash against superhero movies. I feel like if you can't differentiate between multiverse of madness and Thor love and thunder, right. <laughs> then, then you have no critical capacity. And that's the thing is that this year, as I think, uh, I think a lot of people have sort of, um, the Marvel movies have lost their way a little bit as they get more wrapped up in multiverse, multi-plot strand stuff that you do end up with some of these very lifeless movies or like tonally a fucking mess like Love and Thunder or sort of uh, lifeless like uh, like a lot of them have been um, that 
if you can't say that, you know, Werewolf by Night is better than the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special or Multiverse of Madness is better than Thor Love and Thunder, then you don't actually have any taste or critical capacities and you have to be able to differentiate between these things. And this movie, like all of the Marvel movies now, it's got... Too, it's too moored to this universe and keeping the plate spinning and it's got up. But Raimi gets enough times. He takes every, if there's a, a crack of light, he just pries it open to take the moments he's got to make it as fun and as interesting as possible. I really love the hell out of this one too, but I'm a Sam I, Raimi I, super fan. I, I would take 90 minutes of, you know, inter, uh, big reveal of Mr. Fantastic or whatever, you know, they're going to do. If we can also get running under the tunnel of a river that's, you know, uh, breaking down or no, musical notes used as weapons against each other. Wizards fighting with musical notes. The, the literal tempest in a teacup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fighting a, you know, giant octopus monster in the middle of the city. I mean, this stuff is so much fun. I, I can't talk about enough about how great this is handled. And I, I love it. Martin, what do you think? I, I'm not as big of a Sam Raimi guy as both of you, but I completely adore this. <laughs> this is like one of the most entertaining things I've seen all year. And I, I think you're right. Like you can kind of feel the the Marvel formula, the interconnectedness feeling strained at this point. I mean, like um, I, I saw uh, Wakanda Forever also, which is um, I, I think like for the most part, pretty good, but not fun. <laughs> like yeah uh, you know i think like multiverse of madness that's one advantage is it has is that it can afford to be like really just fun and entertaining and like wakanda forever is more of this sort of morose experience but whenever you have something that's like julie louise dreyfus and uh marty feldman like showing up to set up some other movie it's like oh, just get this out of here like <laughs> you know or <laughs> like introducing characters who like <laughs> How like I don't care. Like it, it feels like it, it. Whatever, whatever it is, it's like towards the end of that sustainable interconnected formula. That you know, th there's not that same kind of excitement about the next project or the you know where is this going to lead. But you know, I think Multiverse of Madness. It just helps that it's a little bit more self-contained. It's a little bit more playful and fun. And I think like honestly, you know, for a film that got a lot of flack for the writing, like. I liked Elizabeth Olsen more in this as uh, Scarlet Witch than like anything else she's been in. Like I, that's a yeah. character like I never liked at all. Like no matter, and they kept tweaking the character. I think like you could tell the creative people knew that something wasn't working because they tweaked the character significantly a, a, a couple of times leading up to this. And this is the first time where I'm like, oh, okay, this works. She yeah. works in this. Yeah, all the people complain like ruined Scarlet Witch. It's like what by making her interesting for <laughs> ridiculous. And, and it's 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 crazy too. Like I I don't I'm not I don't care who the Charlies their own character you know in the post credit sequences. I'm too busy trying to figure out how I'm going to get off the ceiling that they just launched me into <laughs> with this injection of Sam Raimi. And it's funny to like compare it to something like the original Doctor Strange, where I was like, why don't I like that movie? Like, is Cumberbatch not very good? Is it just not a great script? And it's like, no, no, it's the difference between Scott Derrickson and Sam Raimi. That's what you're looking at here. <laughs> I don't know if we mentioned Black Phone, but that was the worst horror movie of the year, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Can that true story, the original Doctor Strange, I saw at the Man's Chinese Theater. Uh, I got high with the director of American Pickle and went and saw it in 3D there with a Mimax. True story. <laughs> it sounds like good company. Um, very, very nice dude. Shot Sonic 2. DP on Sonic 2. 
extremely handsome man extremely handsome like socal just like laid back dude just seems unflappable well, I'm glad you liked it, Martin, because it felt like Spider-Man 3 all over again, where I did not understand people's hatred for this movie. It didn't make any sense to me. It felt like I was on a different planet. Yeah, um, no, I, what, I, I, like, yeah. I, I put this on my list, so I'm not going to bring it up again. But, like, I think in terms of, like, entertainment value, it goes, like, pound for pound with just about anything else that came out this year. Like, it's probably the most entertaining film I saw this year. Yeah. Yeah. No question. And there's something, there's no question, as a, as a Raimi fan, too, seeing him get in the ring and lace it up one more time sort of as like it's fun to see him do like a heavyweight bout on a huge budget and if it's not to the absolute level of spider-man 2 it's still fucking awesome to see in there and be like i can hang with anybody it's it's i had a digstown-esque experience with this i stood (laughs) up and cheered for for my boy to just go the the all 12 rounds with it it was great martin what do you got uh i'm gonna (laughs) this is a film that uh, i thought didn't completely work but i really kind of appreciated it for just diving into the subjects that it did and that's uh, bj novak's film vengeance about this uh, podcaster from new york who goes to texas to uh go to the funeral of this girl who he maybe went on a date and slept with very briefly but the family acts as if like, oh, like you're practically family and she's told so much about you. And he's kind of guilt tripped into going on into this uh, funeral and then finds out that the mostly her um, the brother of the girl who's uh, deceased believes that she was murdered. And BJ Novak's character is this uh, podcaster who's like, you know, immediately like licking his chops that he's going to make the next uh, S-Town or serial or one of those types of podcasts <laughs> because he thinks like there is no murder it's just like i'm gonna you know make a, a podcast out of these texas yokels kind of attitude and then gradually as things go on it gets a little bit more complex and muddy and uh i, I think like you know bj novak's obviously very interested in the division in the united states and trying to kind of figure that out in a way that's not condescending and you know often like you know he makes fun of the texas people but there's also a lot of jokes that are at the expense of this like new york podcaster like uh, one of my favorite jokes in the movie was about him is when they turn him into a walrus man (laughs) 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 but uh you know he's like explaining to like um one of the the sisters like about uh, Chekhov's gun and she starts like saying well like you know can you name a gun in a Chekhov play and she starts listing off Chekhov plays and he he has no idea what she's talking about like he's never read a Chekhov play ever you know yeah and it's just little jokes like that I, I really appreciated how you know I think like ultimately what he was saying is that like oh the the people there aren't necessarily stupid and uh you know this whole idea of like maybe going out and getting revenge in this like ethical framework that seems completely alien to this character at the very beginning, like by the end, he's kind of uh, swayed by it, or at least sees that as like, oh, this isn't so crazy to see the world in this way. And um, again, like, I don't think everything completely comes together, but like, I I just appreciate a filmmaker who's going to get his hands dirty with some of those subjects and 
who he makes fun of and who he tries to find humanity in. And uh, also the poster's got a giant cowboy hat on it. So I got to like it, right? <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Another person whose opinion I really respect, my friend and, and former colleague, Kathy Bonamy, saw it and was like, oh, you need to see this movie. It's interesting. I, I will say this. They, it had a, like it was one of those movies that got a really hostile negative reaction. Yeah, like the people that disliked it had a real like not just like fuck this movie, but fuck this movie, and it's obviously something that should go fuck itself. You know what I mean? It's one of those things just so dismissive. Well, I think and, it kind of got this like uh, reception of like a, of kind of falling into the the political cracks that it's like investigating you know yeah. <laughs> like the way people kind of looked at it it's like oh you, you're not just making a film that's here to like make fun of people in texas and yeah. make fun of people who who don't believe in climate change you know like what do you mean you're making fun of us to fuck this movie <laughs> i think was yeah. a little bit the, the reaction to it and like i i think like the, the phrase uh that your friend mentioned that like oh you should see this is kind of like my reaction to it, where it's not even necessarily like I don't know if everyone's going to like this, but I feel like everyone should see it, you know? It looks like the kind of thing I'm like, and I got talked out of it. I sort of got talked out of it by the the cultural reaction to it. But before it came out, I was like, oh, that seems like that's up my alley in some fundamental way. So I'm good. It's good to know it's something I should see. John Cribbs, did you see it? Did not. Did not. Oh, due to your hatred of The Office, I understand how it is. <laughs> I, I, definitely BJ, BJ Novak in general. I'm, I'm glad that Martin uh, said it's worth seeing just because I just always assume that he's kind of worthless, but I really have nothing to base he, that He's on. kind of the perfect, like, I know he's writing and directing the film, but he's also kind of just the perfect person to play this, like, podcaster from the big city who's like, I'm going to go in and make entertainment out of these people. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I, I think, like, uh, yeah. Like even though it's his project, he his casting of himself works really well because you're like, I, I don't like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, for my next pick, I'm going to pick one that's divisive. That really surprised me. It was divisive. This was the best audience experience I had all year. The audience laughed exclaimed in shock just was totally on board it was an electric experience i saw it in a great old movie uh, uh palace type theater uh single screen beautiful old theater and that was the glass onion um and i know you don't like this movie martin i was really surprised to the response to this movie which has been i think harshly negative from a lot of people really caught me off guard because i flipped i hated Knives Out. I did th not think Knives Out was any good whatsoever. I did not like it all. I found it really unlikable. And so I went into this sort of seeing it as like, ah, this is something to see. And it shocked me how just like well it played. And I detested the ending. The last 10 minutes of this movie, I hated so much. It sort of poisoned the well a little bit for me. Just like I I can't celebrate the destruction of a, a priceless piece of art over like a fucking murder. Like the, any one individual human's life is not worth as much as the Mona Lisa. I'm not going to celebrate this, especially since it doesn't bring them back. You know, it's just like you proved a murder. I don't fucking care. I hated the ending in that way. And I hated 
sort of the philosophy of the ending in that way. But I really like this movie. It really, really worked for me. Um, I thought it was funny. And it's obviously all the criticisms of it's broad and it goes after easy targets and it's sort of uh, condescending to its characters and it's not really fair and blah, 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 all that. Like, I get it, but uh, greeting it as entertainment, I really enjoyed the hell out of this thing. I had a lot of fun watching it. I think, uh, like your point about how it played in the theater might be part of the packed audience, the literally not a scene I, house. I, I saw yeah. that, I, I watched it by myself, like on Netflix, and like that the, the jokes were just kind of falling flat for me in the way that was like grading one after another. But like, I, I could see a situation where if I was in a packed theater and, you know, I was laughing along, like it would play very differently. Just like so. the glee of Ethan yeah. Hawke showing up for one scene, you know, <laughs> that stuff worked. And I it's one of those movies where it's like, I can't even defend it because if you go through like the problems with it, I'll be like... Hey, man, you're right, you know, uh, but it just it played perfect. And maybe that's just the case of seeing it with an audience and it playing right is what it was for me. Yeah, same here. I, and I can see how it would be kind of deadly maybe on your own. Just watching it on TV would uh, be a completely different experience. Uh, like Chris, I definitely engaged with that movie through the communal experience of like seeing it at like a cool theater. And yeah, there's like a lot of enthusiasm, like, you know, in the crowd watching it. Um and yeah, Ryan Johnson's such a weird guy to talk about because it seems like I should hate Ryan Johnson. And the truth is like, hey, he's fine. You know, he was he was so fucking nice when I met him at the event. He's just one of like the nicest dudes. He's also I always make the joke that every director is tall and comes from money to begin with. And the only exceptions are he's one of the only exceptions because he's very, very short. But he does come from money to begin with. I'm sure I've told this on the podcast before. It was after a screening of Brick and somebody in the audience was like, uh, so how did you get this uh, movie made and he's like well we got it together for like $850,000 and and I went to to like my agent and he packaged it and got the money together and the guy was like but how did you get an agent and he's like well you know you just I had the script and I showed it around and the agent really liked it and blah blah and the guy is like a dog with a bone he asked him like four questions until Ryan Johnson is like the agent is my dad's best friend and he sort of gave me the money as a family favor, you know? And it's just like, that is, that is just filmmaking in a nutshell. Some guy like that famous interview with Jennifer Lynch at Sundance, when someone asked how she got it funded, she said, you know, I mowed a lot of lawns, worked a lot of summer jobs. And you're like, you're David Lynch's fucking daughter. You like, <laughs> how can you get up here and lie? Like you mowed lawns to make boxing Helena. What in <laughs> Fuck's name are you talking about? It's that same I remember the, like, well, you know, my agent, you know, got it together yeah. and packed it. Your dad's buddy gave you eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Uh, the most absurd one for me was uh Brendan Cronenberg at TIFF, where they're like, We found this young up-and-coming talent. Like, <laughs> fuck right off. Like, you know, it, it's not even like a judgment of it. It was just like the reaction of like like trying to pretend this there wasn't this uh that that the name meant nothing that the connections meant nothing it yeah. was like like don't don't pretend like <laughs> he, yeah. he wouldn't tell us his last name he claimed his name was brandon jones oh months this is a great one though on the exact opposite side of it at jason reitman we did an event with once uh, with up in the air and somebody in the audience asked, this is a great independent film. How did you get this movie made? How did you get it hired and do it? He said, uh, have your dad make ghostbusters. Like, I don't know that there's any <laughs> other answer to this question. 
Freshly candid, that Jason Reitman. <laughs> so, guys, for I guess the next bit, maybe we should do like kind of just for the sake of like getting this finished at some point. You think so? Like, I I have I have four more. How many do you have, John? I I have as many as you know we could talk about. But I thought maybe do more of a rapid fire uh, kind of session thing where uh, like I'll name three or four more movies. We can have a little discussions about them, and then you, you know, we'll do it like that. We'll kind of like finish off our lists. Well, I think there's one, yeah. one sort of big one that we should talk about because it is one of the big movies sure. of the year and sort of an Oscar favorite that I know you and I both liked, which is the Banshees of Inisherin, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, which is one that I liked a lot. And then we can do rapid fire after that. That'll be perfect. I have three more, and I'll just do them all as one insane grouping. But cool. does that sound okay, Martin? Yeah, sounds good to me. Great. So Banshees of, of Inisherin. Uh John, you like this one very much too. Do you want to do uh, yeah. you talk about it? Let me let me set this up in a little bit of way. You and I have been going to Toronto for a very, very long time. We took a year uh, like a couple years off. I took a year off because I was sick of going and then COVID happened. So I couldn't go for several years. So it ended up what was supposed to be a one year break ended up being like three or four years. I don't even remember. And so we finally went back to Toronto this year after a break. And when you and I go up to Toronto, we drive up, we spend the entire time around each other. We sh- stay in a hotel room together, right? We spend a lot of time around each other. In the morning, we were supposed to go see this. You and I hated each other's fucking guts. And I don't know if you noticed this you were very upset about how long we were taking to get out and you were really like throwing a tantrum about it and i was really pissed off with you we had just on each other's nerves like seven or eight days into the festival right and so i you don't and you have no sense of direct- just just to add a Wait. little bit of context just a little bit of context this year's festival you know there weren't as many films as there usually are there definitely weren't as many exci- as exciting prestige films as usual so like if you missed like a one that you were expecting to be great it ruined the day you know because it was just yeah. a bunch of like eh, i enjoyed sitting there but this is nothing this is like nothing that i really write home about so i was so worried about being late and not getting a seat for Banshees of Inishir. And that was my mood and everything yeah. was going wrong for us. And also and that's this, why I was so irritable. Yeah. The, the, also we were, we're older and we decided to get a hotel like 20 minutes from downtown to get like a nicer, bigger hotel room this time and stay in like an actual hotel and try and do something a little nicer. So rather than stay in a smaller, expensive room downtown to like try and live a little nice. So we were driving in and out each day. We had a rented parking space, uh, which adds to we you had to, I had to drive you. So you were sort of like beholden to me. There wasn't public transportation to get in also. But I you famously have an awful sense of direction, have no idea what's going on because you were angry about being late. I was driving in circles around where we were going, trying to add time onto the trip and telling you we were running into traffic. And I made the trip take about a half an hour longer than it was supposed to because I was really fucking pissed at you. And you had no clue. And in my head, I was too like, and this fucking guy has no sense of direction. This guy just, he couldn't even find a phone booth if he was inside of it. I've got this fucking animal. I've got a cart around with me everywhere. So then we go and see this movie and you and I have talked about this with this movie. This movie is our relationship. 
I'm Brendan Gleeson <laughs> and you're Colin Farrell. This is this is what it's like. And also seeing this movie at this time when we were feeling so like on each other's throats, hey, it instantly repaired everything, you know, between us. But I do Magic think of that, cinema. <laughs> that this this movie really was impactful in that way and that this movie really describes our relationship. And I, I hope you're okay with me talking about it on the podcast a little bit. When you and I came up, you were a filmmaker and wanted to make films and were a writer and would write scripts and stuff. And at some point you stopped doing that and you became like sort of a Colin Farrell-esque character uh, uh, who's able to, you want to, what you've said to before is you want to live like Jim Patterson from <laughs> Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, right? You want to live like the main character in Patterson to just be your bus driver. And if you feel like writing a poem, write it. And I feel like Brendan Gleeson where it's, I'm like, I, my time is running out. I'm not making the art I want to make. I'm not making the the mark in the world I want to make with my art. I'm still a filmmaker. That's my full-time primary job as screenwriter and producer, right? That's still what I'm going after. And I definitely have moments where you, where I feel like, I'm pissing my life away sitting around talking about movies with you, John. Just go away. I don't want to be your friend anymore. If you talk to me again, I'm cutting my fingers off. And then I play my song for everybody. And my song is mediocre, right? The song that I've written isn't that great, you know? And I'm and I'm angry at my friend who hasn't done anything wrong except be be nice and wanted to to talk to me about the little donkeys. You know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, I definitely we have that dynamic in real life where you're the good hearted, likable guy that everybody loves, uh, who definitely isn't the dumbest guy on the island. That's that's definitely <laughs> definitely true that you're not the dumbest guy. I'll and take I'm, that I'm the handsomest guy on the island. <laughs> and I'm like the dyspeptic artist who's maybe not good enough at art, who maybe really truly isn't good enough at art. And the things that I've made my value system for my life really are a waste of my life. And and the thing I should be valuing is is something that I'm now angry at, you know, sort of displaced anger. But at the same time wanting uh, in circumstances where things aren't laid out for me to really pursue my art, you know, and to to care about the things that are really meaningful that I built my life around that aren't working out great. And just sort of looking at you and going, you're just fucking happy there with with your fucking pizza and your Eagles games. Great, John. <laughs> Wish well, those I things could bring me joy. This movie is really smart about just the world in general for that reason you know the idea that like i'm part of this society and this like kind of in the, in the movie this you know very secluded kind of society that they're in and like but i'm better than people here i'm gonna yeah. go sit on that side of the room and be yeah. better than you <laughs> which is my most, fucking like, personality no i know it's great this idea of like you know if i just like got rid of this person i'm around my life will be better <laughs> without like any consideration of like everything else not even like whether or not the violin music is mediocre or not, but just, just like that ain't the problem, pal. You know, like it has that. But like I've been Brendan Gleeson too with my relationships with other people. I've been Colin Farrell to other people, you know. It's just like it's just a great, interesting like examination of like those two mindsets of one that's just like completely resigned to like, yeah, whatever. I mean, none of us are great. This is just what we do. And one being like, no, I definitely am going to do something i'm going to get out of this place and be better 
So I'm going to go sit over there and be better by myself. It's just such a smart and fun, funny movie too. Super funny. So fucking funny. Martin, how do you feel about being the Barry Keegan to us on this show? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I actually haven't seen Banshees of Inisherin yet. Um, It's as good as fucking people say. I I, I believe them, but I I think like it's the kind of film where it's going to wreck me. Like I, yeah. I, I, I cried watching the "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" episode where Colmini died and Charlie Day had to like <laughs> drag him up a hill. <laughs> Something about Ireland stories that are like, I'm like, it's gonna make me cry. Like it's gonna, I, I have a feeling. It's call meaning must no, no, it's not. Don't you think call meaning must hate Brendan Gleeson? <laughs> <laughs> Just taking all of his roles at this point. I have to be on this damn TV show. It's not. It's not a make you cry movie. It's not sentimental in that way. It's. It's bleak parts are extremely bleak, not sad and weepy. And it and it finds a way to find happiness and beauty and humor in bleakness. It reminds me of his brother's movie Calvary uh, more than than his other movies. It has that same sort of when the. Um, Oh, Jesus Christ. The guy from the IT crowd who shows up as a character uh, yeah. actor. Yeah, the Irish actor. I can't remember his name. Chris O'Dowd? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, Chris O'Dowd has that has that monologue in that movie about the kid who's born blind, deaf, and dumb and just living in terrified agony for its entire existence. And how could God do that to anybody? That's the tone this movie gets when it gets bleak, right? It doesn't get like sentimental at all. This is a movie with no sentimentality. Um I would say, I would say it has humor and I feel like people mistake its humor for sentimentality. I'd say it's like a harsh and unflinching movie that, that is unresolvable in some way. I think it's about an unresolvable feelings that we have and unresolvable conflicts that, that we have. I think that's why it uses the metaphor of, of the war uh, that's happening on the mainland as sort of the idea of unresolvable conflicts that exist in life. Um, and I think this movie's quite excellent. It's one of the few few movies each year. I'm always surprised when like the critical consensus movies I'm a thousand percent on board with. But this is one I'm a thousand percent on board with. And I also think it's going to be one of those movies you can see the backlash coming, like what happened with three billboards. It's where, that's and, another thing where it's, it's like, like yeah. I, I was also kind of waiting where I could watch the movie and have an opinion on it like six months after everyone's already gotten that out of their system. It's like one of those films where I I just feel like, I don't want to argue about that. Like, yeah, well, it's a real, it's a real artwork. It's not like going after the King's speech or something like that, where it's like, this is, there's, there's no way to debate that movie because its aims are so generic and its goals are so uh, thoroughly mediocre and middle brow. This is a real movie by a real artist. So if you want to fight with it and you want to take issue with it, it's up for a fight. It's up for being taken issue with. It proposes things that you can disagree with. It takes opinions and ideas that can be untalentable. It It's willing to play blue notes and take false steps too, right? In a way that real artworks are. And then it's also an incredible crowd pleaser and incredibly funny in, in a way um, that I think also opens it to criticism as well. And so you can just see if there's a backlash against this movie, it's because it's a real movie, you know, that that's, that's why it is. And not yeah. because it's actually trivial masquerading is real, like the Fablemans or something, uh, or the whale. It, it's, it's actually, or, uh... yeah, yeah. 
um it's it's a real movie it's fine to have been a fan of Martin McDonald for so many years, you know, and it's funny because people say, oh, yeah, like three billboards. I don't really like that one that much. Yeah. But his plays and uh, Six Shooter, his short film in Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, everything like that. This really feels like a culmination. Like this is what everything's like built up for. It feels like his big one, like the one that he was yeah. meant to like, put on earth to make was this one. Let me say one more thing about about the backlash, because it popped in my head when you were talking, John. Triangle of Sadness, there will never be a backlash against, because Triangle of Sadness tells its audience exactly what it wants to hear. It in no way challenges its audience in any way. It is a film that exists to flatter the sensibility of its audience. The only person offended or challenged or upset by Triangle of Sadness is an imaginary audience that the audience that the film is specifically for conjures in their head as being the people who feel skewered or criticized or offended by this movie. But in fact, it's only telling th that audience exactly what they want to hear. It's telling them that this is an act of, of transgression and rebellion that they're engaged in when it's in fact an act of, of, of total flattery, of total lack of challenge and any of that. And the middle, middle sequence with Woody Harrelson on the boat is quite good quite good filmmaking very enjoyable the final sequence on the island is nothing it's not worth anybody's time the beginning is fine it's not a bad movie it's just a movie that is not an artwork and it's not a movie it's almost an act of pornography and how willing how much it desires to satisfy its audience uh, just a, just that is that is a movie that there will never be a backlash against because it's not Banshees of Inisherin. It's it's as phony as a three dollar bill with Rondo Hatton's picture on it. No, that's not true at all. It's it's uh, it's not phony in that way. It's just something that doesn't challenge people at all. It's just not a real piece of art. It's bullshit. It's fake art. I believe you. I probably won't see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So for the rapid fire round, let me. Let me start with two films that are by veteran filmmakers that I, I think at least two of us love. I think all three of us love um, that were both not bad. They weren't bad. They definitely weren't bad, but they did. <laughs> they were not. They were not amazing, you know. But like, I feel like we should still mention them because nobody's talking about them. The first one is Three Thousand Years of Longing by George Miller, which I think Martin is the only person I've seen on Twitter even bring <laughs> yeah. it up at all. <laughs> Which is a film that has a lot of good stuff in it, um, but also has the weird kind of wheel spinning thing going on where it feels like it never reaches that moment that you're supposed to reach. It almost felt like after Mad Max Fury Road, which is so stripped down and so focused, George Miller almost wanted as an experiment to do something that was completely the opposite, where it's going to be like, you know, two people in a room talking about stories that lead to nowhere. <laughs> I... I think like it is kind of messy by design. I think the only thing I like I distinctly didn't like about it was the epilogue. You know, it's I mean, the, the joke I was making is that it's 3000 years of longing, not 3000 years of I'll see you on weekends or whatever. You know? <laughs> like, I, I think like it should have left you with this sort of yearning and longing for something that you can never quite get and feel satisfied. And, you know, this longing for the kind of magic of a world that can exist in your world yeah um so like very i i put this on my list also just because like it's a very interesting film and like a very messy film but 
I don't know. It's also kind of cool that George Miller was like, all right, I'm going to trade in my clout for making Mad Max Fury Road and make like a cult movie for middle-aged women, you know, like, <laughs> it's just like, but he did oh, that like, with Mad Max and Witches of Eastwick. It's the second know, time it, he's done that. <laughs> True. Um, you know, and like, he's just, it's interesting to see where his filmmaking is. And I loved all the, like the storytelling stuff, how fantastic it was. It reminded me of like, um, stuff like the 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 little princess and it's it's like uh, you know you can say magical realism but it's it's like a certain kind of magical realism that you just like don't see as much anymore and yeah. uh, i i don't know like i there's something about it that's really captivating and evocative and it's just like yeah ultimately it's not satisfying by the end or it, it's not completely cohesive by the end but it's just such an interesting sort of film artifact by somebody who's obviously a great filmmaker i legitimately couldn't tell when i walked out if i wanted to see it again immediately or <laughs> never again in my life you know? <laughs> it's so, such a weird experience i mean yeah. like nothing makes me cringe more than it's a story about stories you know <laughs> like that like doesn't seem appeal to me that doesn't appeal to me at all but i was totally immersed in this film in the world of this film and every time it got into a story it was almost like a tease because i would immediately get into it and be like, I want to know more about these characters and what happens with this particular segment. And then it would be over, you know, then we'd be back with uh, Tilda Swinton in her bathrobe and a giant Idris Elba, you know, and it was like, what a weird decision. Every single well, it, decision I mean, in this, this movie. Is. Like also just this idea of the, the, the consciousness of like, if you did find it a genie, you would know that like, well, I got to be careful what I wish for because genies are there to screw up your wishes and twist them. But like, you know, with the, Idris Elba character says about like it's your own desire you know it's almost like in um in a roadside picnic or a stalker where at the end it's it's like you're you're afraid of what you actually desire and that you might get it and I don't like I, I just feel like there's so many ideas and there's so much kind of going on with it it's like this big sprawling thing that's yeah, like I, I definitely want to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. I do want to see it again because I, <laughs> yeah. I do have questions. That I feel like I could try to answer myself. Uh, but in that same vein, uh, the new Lucille um, Hadzilovich. Oh, yeah. I say her name correctly. Hadzilovich. Hadzilovich. Okay. Lucille H's new movie, Earwig. Uh, I had the same kind of thing where it's like I was it was a painting that movie like it was just so beautifully made such a gorgeously composed film just only a master could make this film but what was this film <laughs> as soon as it was over you know someone asked me what was it about I said I don't know I'm not sure <laughs> um, it gets compared to David Lynch and I think this is a real case of like yes when you ask somebody what was Firewalk with me about you go I don't I don't really know what that movie was about. <laughs> it's same thing with this one. I didn't see um, 3000 Years of Longing. And this is a, a thing that happens with me now where like there's movies that I definitely, five years ago that I definitely would have lined up to see that I just don't see anymore and don't feel like I'm ever going to see. It happened with 3000 Years of Longing, Vortex, the Dario Gento Gaspar Noe movie. I, I, I don't think you're alone with 3000 Years of Longing. Like yeah. I don't know yeah, how many people not. saw that. But, you know, Kimmy, The Menu, uh, Al Malrick directed a movie that I definitely would have gone out of my way to see. Ozan had two movies that I didn't see. The Scream remake. And it's these are all things that I definitely would have seen that I feel like I'll just probably never watch them. That's really, and I don't know why whatsoever. Uh, but with Earwig, 
Hatsal Losevich is one of my very favorite filmmakers based on Innocence and Evolution. I think those are two she, of the greatest she's married movies. married to Gaspar Noe, right? Yes. And yeah, she's okay. she's the talented one in the marriage. Um, <laughs> and she's uh, no, she's she he's not untalented. She is a supernova. And I don't understand their reputation should be a thousand percent flipped. You know, he should be like the interesting curio that some people have heard of. And she should be like the art world superstar. Um, and so I whose name whose name people can definitely pronounce. Yes. <laughs> um, the way they know that that, that it's no. Way, not Gaspar, no. Haji um, Halilovich. That's yeah. so hard. Yeah. Um, isn't it Hadsel Halosevich? I, I think it's uh, Haji Halilovich. Hadsi Halilovich. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's I'm wrong. Z-Havil- yeah, it's the Z- Hadsi Halilovich. Yeah. Halilovich. Yeah. I think you're right, Mark. Halilovich. It's funny because this movie, oh, I was going to say, but you're right. This movie is like, um, a very much I can picture exactly what 3000 years of longing is now based on your comparing the two. This is a movie where you're like, I, I don't I do, I'm not here to call this bad. I'm not here to call this uh, a failed experiment any anyway. I'm what I'm here to say is they were in pursuit of an artistic ideal that is inscrutable to me. You well know said, that yeah. that they are just after something that is behind a, a veil that that when I pull the veil, there's another fucking veil behind it. And when I pull it and then suddenly I'm surrounded by veils and I'm like, where the where the fuck are we, guys? <laughs> That's it. Exactly. But the thing is, too, this movie immediately, immediately made me think of yet another film by a beloved veteran filmmaker that lots of people love people on the top of their list crimes of the future the cronenberg movie oh yeah so similar with especially since the plot is basically you know an adult's preoccupation with the anatomy of a child but even like the style is similar the austere kind of interiors and the kind of very very dark cinematography uh and the difference being that like it's almost like in earwig they are afraid of revealing too much because they know that the audience is not going to be able to go along with it whereas crimes of the future is constantly trying to get you to go along with things that just don't make any sense and don't connect at least to me they like seem like cronenberg's cheesiest uh you know antics from like the past kind of altering this things that like it's existence except without any fun in it yeah just like i was gonna say where, existence is yeah the where, he, where he doesn't like understand video games and existence in this he doesn't understand like the art world or performance art or uh cops a cop movie he doesn't understand like how to do a cop movie like everything in it is like <laughs> just his worst instincts well, in this one also, film I, I i completely agree with you and like there's a part of it that feels like david cronenberg just letting his own voice out and like i've heard him talk uh, quite a few times and like he'll it's clear that he has a very high opinion of himself and yeah like often not a high opinion of his imitators and like some so many of the lines in crimes of the future just felt to be like david cronenberg speaking directly to the audience like when they have the performer with all the ears and it's just like uh is that even and you're like, oh, those ears don't even work. And like, I'm the one who's doing, I'm the one who's pulling the real art out of my horse. <laughs> like, it felt like a little bit like, um, I don't know, some, something was very like off-putting to me about Crimes of the Future where, yeah, like on one hand, it, it kind of feels like a, like a victory lap of his whole career kind of revisiting stuff, but it's just ultimately so 
you know what I will compare to? This summer, I went to something called the Global Citizen Festival, music festival in Central Park. And the final act was Metallica. Crimes of the Future is wa- like watching Metallica in 2022 at the Global Citizen Film Festival in Central Park after like Main Skin and Rosalia have my, my performed. My skin actually just crawled. I, I, it's, I don't it's, know if you can see, I got goosebumps. From it's, not, it's not like seeing REO Speedwagon at the county fair. It's not like somebody irrelevant trotting out the greatest hits. It's like somebody who's still considered a titan performing as the headliner at a big show. This is a $30 million movie with big major stars in it, right? But it feels like the just the ship has sailed. Like I would have loved to have seen, I, I knew the words to every song. It was cool to once in my life here, Master of Puppets live, you know. Uh, I, this is this is at least 25 fucking years too late for this. And this movie feels the same way. It feels like I'm not here to say this was bad. I'm not here to tell you Metallica did not fucking rock and bring the heat. It's just like it's this, this is, movie. This movie this is, is Metallica your... at the Global Citizen Film Festival in 2022. That's it's what your, this movie was. It's your Lulu Cronenberg. It's your Lou Reed meets Metallica. album. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an interesting mess. That would be great. (laughs) This is really like somebody who's a Titan coming out and playing the hits and you feel like it's just not the magic's not there, whatever it fucking is. And the magic doesn't come back just just because you try and will it into existence. You know, it's I got to say he didn't get the crowd moving as much as the Jonas Brothers did to open the show. If you want to keep giving $30 million to Cronenberg every year to make a movie, I will go see every single one of well, them. But that's what's so but weird about it. I also want to be honest it, about a filmmaker yeah. I love, you know, at the same it, time. It just looks so cheap, too. That's the thing. I was like, God, it looks like it was made for 15 cents. And then somebody told me the budget was $30 million. I was like, what the fuck? You know, like literally Bob Odenkirk in the convenience store. What the fuck? Kind of reaction to it. But just to bring it back, I think Earwig is successful in a way that Crimes of the Future is not. So I liked Earwig better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Earwig's weirder. Earwig Earwig is her. Earwig is Lou Reed with Metallica, where you're like, I don't know what the plan was. I don't know that this is actually good. You're in your prime. I'm glad you got out here and did this. You know, I'm glad you took this risk. God bless you. I, I will listen to this record again a few times, and each time I'll come away dissatisfied. I'm going to watch Earwig a few more times, and I'm sure walk away and go, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> um, my pairing, let me throw a pairing at you guys for this lightning round, which is going on just as well. I I have, um, it's two auteurs who made like solid movies that clearly aren't their best, but still work. They're just somehow not the heights. It's sort of the kind of thing when you look back at their body of work, you'll be like, oh, that's a good one. That one's underrated because they're not at the heights. It's One Fine Morning by Mia Hansen Love and Broker by Hirokazu Koryeda. And these are both um, interesting movies. One Fine Morning is Mia Hansen's Love, a uh, movie about a young woman played by Leah Sado, whose father is, um, he doesn't have dementia. He has like a, a, a def- defectiveness of his optical nerve, which causes brain problems as well. But he it starts manifesting with he has trouble seeing and then has a sort of a, a dementia 
esque mental problem and has to be uh, placed in a home and assisted living facilities. And it's all about trying to find a good assisted living facilities for her. Her, she's a single mother. It's about her starting an affair with a married guy. Uh, and all I can think when I watch her movies is God damn, her life seems hard. All of her movies seem a touch autobiographical and they're all fucking miserable. Just, it seems like she's been through a hell of a fucking lot. Um, and then the other one is Broker, uh, which is a movie that Coriata made in Korea with sort of like the usual suspects of Korean acting in it. And it's about um, a woman who wants to give her child up to an orphanage and two guys working at the orphanage intercept the baby and convince her and said to sell it to a buyer and split the money with them. And it's a very, you know, very Cordiate-ish makeshift uh, family kind of movie. It has the same problem that After the Storm does uh, by having the private detective subplot of there's like a cop's subplot and his movies really are, the genre elements are, bad he just needs to remove them entirely from his movies and just let the naturalism go um it's good not great uh and especially after shoplifters which is as good a movie as was produced this century um and uh it's it's hard to think of this one as being really great it's it's very solid it's it's not one of his best uh it's probably being underrated by coming after shoplifters and not being super great and having him work in Korea is a little bit weird of a twist. One Fine Morning is the opposite where um, she made that movie. What's the name of that movie? Uh, she made that movie Maya, which I hated so much. I was under the impression I don't think Mia Hansen Love is a good filmmaker. It was that bad where I was like, maybe she's not good and maybe I don't care about her movies anymore. This is a nice recovery from that. It's like, no, she is good. She's doing what she does. This is not on the level of um, uh, Changing Times or or uh, uh, Goodbye First Love. It's not those sort of like titanically intimate work. It's just very, very solid, very, very solid movie from a, a really uh, talented and special filmmaker. And those two are a, a good pairing, sort of movies that are destined to be uh, underrated and a little forgotten by by major auteurs. Well, One Fine Morning is her follow-up to um, Bergman Island. So she's back on track. You know, oh yeah, I forgot about Bergman Island. Yeah, Bergman I, Island I was like great. Bergman Island, but... Oh really? I liked it. <laughs> Uh, a Bergman Island was not good enough to make me feel like she's back. This one made me feel like she's back um, with that. Did you see either of these, Martin? No, I haven't seen either one yet. And John, you didn't see Broker yet, did you? I made the decision to leave Broker to see Decision to Leave. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the festival. But um, yeah, I saw One Fine Morning and uh, it's a really good film. It's the first film I've liked Leah Sado in. Uh, yeah, as, me too. As recent as Crimes of the Future, I thought she... <laughs> was awful in a lot of movies. And then this was like, oh, she's very good in this one. That's she's good. she's the modern era Isabella Johnny where I'm just like, why am I being cursed with this person being in movies of filmmakers I like? What, what did I fucking do to deserve this like no talent charisma void being forced into interesting filmmakers movies over and over and over again? And then she's actually good in this. So now I like her and I take it all back. I take them all back. That's All of the movies are good. Every performance was good. She's a real talent. That's the Mia Hansen love touch. I mean, Mia Wasikowski <laughs> and Bergman Island, I didn't like until that film. So. That's true, too. And you she's also in a, ta in she's also in a, a terrible Cronenberg, late Cronenberg. That's true. <laughs> Have you seen uh, Farewell, My Queen? No. 
with um, Leah Sado and Diane Kruger. I really like her in that. And then I oh, felt I did like see that. she, did see that. she yeah. was in like a string of these sort of Hollywood movies that didn't really do much with her. But uh, like, I don't know, like her in the, the James Bond or a yeah. couple other yeah. things. Oh, so. God. Just her as a Bond girl. What is what is the world coming yeah. to? And she's, she's supposed the, to be like she's the, the, the like, love of James Bond's life kind of a character and yeah i don't know he would die for her get out of my face with this bullshit no time to die this is just not sullen sullen french woman is not (laughs) the james bond um okay i'll do uh speed round two that kind of fit together in a way they're both sort of martin 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 this isn't speed run two this is your next game plus on dark souls three next game plus (laughs) Next plus, I'm going to talk about difficult cinema. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with Elvis and Shin Ultraman, which are two films that kind of ride that line of like, is this good? <laughs> uh, I, I feel like they're both movies where I kind of got a lot of movie for my movie. You know, it's it's so like jam-packed, full of interesting images and sounds and everything that there there are these like experiences that uh, i didn't get from too many other things this year it's like a lot Elvis, of movies coming at you yeah it, it's a lot of movie where it's like <laughs> it's almost like you, you can't even judge if it's good or not because you're just getting like blasted by this like fire hose of cinema I'm you know? just... and like some of the stuff is like like tom hanks is maybe doing like one of the worst performances I've i was gonna say i'm just glad he got to bring back his lady killers character oh my god his fucking <laughs> foghorn leghorn colonel sanders it's mashup but well, I do declare like, um... this boy Elvis might be the most talented young man in all of the country, I do declare. But it's like... Um... Now listen here, boy, while we're on the Ferris wheel, <laughs> let me lay out your future career. Well, what's crazy is that you can watch clips of the real guy. He didn't talk like that. He didn't he, have to Tom Parker like... was nothing like that. He's nothing like... Like, it's not... Like, where is that performance coming from? But, like... Yeah, I that, swear like, to God, right he was like, against, nobody uh, saw the lady killers. I wasted that performance. Let me just do it again. Bring it back. <laughs> and, but like my, my kind of line on the movie after I saw it was like, I don't even know if that was good, but if like my ticket cost $85, I would have felt like I got my money's <laughs> worth. You know, it's like going to see a concert or something like that, where it's just like- It's a, it's a Broadway big, show experience. It's, it's a Broadway show that you get in the form of a movie. And like, it, it's kind of satisfying in the way that like a Broadway show where- <laughs> Like, uh, what, what, what was that even good? I don't care. I'm singing the tunes on the way out. I had a good time, you know? <laughs> like, I felt like I got my money's worth kind of reaction to watching that. And uh, Shin Ultraman, I think um, probably people here haven't seen it. I had to get I, a copy I, early I, I because... I almost watched it this week because I have Yeah, once. yeah. Uh, like, I, I think it, it just, like, dragged a little bit too long to get released over in North America. But it's... Uh, I don't, I've I've really liked Ultra Q, but I never really made it as far as the Ultraman series. So like I'm not super familiar with the character, but from what I understand, it's it's trying to go back to the the roots in the way that like Shin Godzilla was like going back to the kind of serious metaphor for nuclear anxiety kind of roots of uh, Godzilla. But this is like the, the like goofier, more fun roots of uh, Shin Ultraman or uh, Ultraman, I guess. And I don't know, it's it's big it's funny it's like just two hours of like an updated version of uh you know that kind of 
television show and it's it's a lot of fun it's um i i would say it's not as good as shin godzilla there's parts where i'm like is this even good at all but it just feels like it, it's capturing a certain kind of spirit and energy that you don't it's always going for see it. as often it's going for it which it's is like i feel like it. both of these films elvis and shin ultraman are films that kind of go for it in a way that i i appreciate even if it's not always successful or if it's like uneven john did you see elvis i did see elvis yes it was a ride that's for sure um <laughs> it's it's funny like a lot of people compare it to blonde and i think it's a pretty good comparison you know these two and i got <laughs> of course she, of course you did re- martin you can't it's, do a, <laughs> it's a really obvious and i think reasonable comparison to these sort of like excessive fantasias divorced yeah. from the reality and i'd say yeah. they both have the same central problem of whatever anna diarmas's charms are they're nothing like marilyn monroe's she's no. completely different type and the guy who play and i've i don't know for whatever reason i watched a ton of elvis movies this year on tcm and and renting and stuff i got really in to uh norman turog the great norman turog director of a bunch of elvis movies and uh and i really enjoyed them elvis's charisma is so otherworldly special you can't just put some fucking asshole in there and have it work there there's there's a problem with you can't do an impression of these singular people these sort of stratospherically charismatic talents that elvis you just put him on screen and he goes hey and you're like, holy shit, right on. Like, it's it's ridiculous the how actor star tries power to works. compensate for it by, by just like by wiggling very, a lot. Yeah, he wiggles. He's a wiggler. There's a clip where he's, he's like sucking on the microphone that was going around. Like, he, he does that to kind of try to match that energy it, that the Elvis reminds, didn't have to. Uh, yeah. yeah, it but, reminds me of Bye Bye Birdie, where it acts like Elvis was a manic presence, when Elvis is yeah. in fact like a gentle, dopey presence. Elvis is like a balladeer. hound dog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as much as, no, as, I, much I as, so. a, as a rocker. And he's yeah. definitely, when you watch the Elvis movies, he's a Matthew McConaughey type. He's somebody who shows up and is just like, hey, I'm awesome. And everybody's yeah. like, you know what? You are awesome. I cannot disagree with this. Yeah. You know? No, and I think like it's interesting to see films like Blonde or Elvis that are they're not at all interested in the real person. They're interested in the idea of that person in pop culture. And I think like just in defense of why I would put Elvis on my list and Blonde not, it's that Elvis manages to be very entertaining. You know, versus Blonde, which was like this a bore. slog of misery and boredom, you know, it, like all the for all the like sex talk that was like talked up in it, it's it's just like such a like boring, low energy kind of thing that like I was shocked that people had strong feelings about blood. Like I'm like, it's such a nothing it's, movie. If he hadn't given those interviews, I don't think they would have. I, I guess, think it would have been a shrug. Set it off, but, yeah. And those anyway. interviews are nuts. Those interviews are nuts. I have a bunch of behind the scenes stories of that guy that I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell. And it's, he's somebody that I always find like, <laughs> I was always like, I, I, assassination of, of Jesse James is fool's gold. I'm, I'm trying to tell you, everybody listen, this guy is like fool's assassination gold. of Jesse James, like 80% of that movie is like almost unforgivably like boring muddled. Yeah. There's like 
a little bit at the beginning and then like a last 20 minutes where the film kind of comes together and leaves you feeling like you saw a good movie. I don't, I don't <laughs> like it very much. I don't yeah. like it very much. And, but it's certainly better than the others. Um, no, the, the Elvis is, is, uh, I would say a bad movie and blonde <laughs> is a forgettable movie, but I appreciate that you like it. I appreciate the idea of what, what, when there is a lot of talk about like, this is the inevitable conversation cinema versus streaming the yeah. tvification well, like, of cinema yeah what's, seeing in a theater what's like what, what's enough yeah. like the like, death of middle class middle brown the, movies. The, the like yeah. fablemans not doing well in theaters and stuff like that but it's like i i don't like elvis would get my butt in a seat like that you know yeah good or bad it's the, it's a baz Luhrmann movie that's gonna blow you away <laughs> with its fire yeah. hose of cinema you know versus like Shakespeare in his tepid years reflecting on his life it's like yeah I, I don't like I'm not gonna see that in a theater like and I'm I'm somebody who loves cinema like I love cinema and that's not something that I would want to see in a theater you know yeah and yeah and it's again sort of I do think they do make that middle class uh, of cinema type stuff but I think it's like are you really is that you know what you're actually saying is see how they run an Elvis and yeah. Glass Onion and and Top Gun Magic fast... was like that too. No, Top Gun Magic like... is blockbuster. That's that's an yeah. entirely different conversation that I, I don't want to get into with Top Gun Maverick. I feel like that's that's too much of a thing to bite off. <laughs> yeah. But um Amst or... Amsterdam. We need yeah. to make fun of the fact that they gave Dignity <laughs> Russell eighty million dollars to make that movie. Yeah. Um Russell. John, do you have another? Do you have another pairing? I would just say that there's these middle class movies that aren't actually that great. They aren't that great. They're out there and they're just not that great. And that's what they've always been is not that great. Yeah. If you're but sad, they, if they're sad, are... you don't make a long came a spider and put it in the theaters anymore. <laughs> well, I don't know what the fucking tell you. Yeah. You know, don't but, have but nostalgia. Some of definitely yeah. have that feeling of like, like it doesn't matter if it's great. Like I, I want to see something in a movie theater and what's worth seeing in yeah. the theater. And some of them are and some of them aren't. And people are like moaning some of these films that aren't which are just like like it, it doesn't even matter if the movie's good like who would want to see that in a theater <laughs> you know there's a couple <laughs> of these movies that came out this year that people were like oh it's the death of cinema and it's just like maybe the movie is not something that you would want to go and see in a theater you know it, it, it doesn't have that that aura of like, ooh, th this is something I need to see in the cinema, you know? Yeah. I just also, you know, yeah, it's a bigger conversation, but yeah. I do feel like, you know, it it's always the question of, are there filmmakers who are Truffaut and Fellini and Tarkovsky and Bresson and Godard and Romer right now? Maybe Romer, nobody else in that list i've just talked about and is that those are all worth seeing in the cinema and i think that it's not the death of the middle class it's sort of the death of fine arts in cinema has been more detrimental than anything else to me that that really the genrefication that happens uh of art cinema that happens post tarantino has been the most pernicious thing but um john another pairing is it no. Top Gun Maverick mm. that you're going to talk about? <laughs> no, no, I'm all tapped out. Um, do you guys have another few more you wanted to throw out? Yeah, I have one more to talk about. And let's you let you do a couple. You do a couple, Martin, give it to me for one, okay. and then you'll do a couple more. 
so two more that I just want to pair together. Uh, one is the Pixar movie Turning Red, and the other one is uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Yeah, which are both completely solid, satisfying movies. Um, again, talking about like what goes in the theater and what doesn't. It, it's kind of crazy this year that they put the the Buzz Lightyear movie that looked like it was direct to video in theaters, and then the the film that I, I think like you would actually want to go and see in a theater that has like a giant panda and bring your kid like that one got done straight to streaming. So <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Like, and I feel like the, the Pixar, their formula, their style, it's starting to feel a little bit like tired. Uh, like I haven't liked a lot of the recent Pixar movies. I'm not like, I know some people are like totally wild about Pixar, but you know, I feel like there's been a lot of other animated films that kind of, push things forward and do interesting things, you know, like you get a Spider-Verse or you know, other other stuff like that. Like I haven't seen the new Puss in Boots, but people are saying that's pretty good. But I, I liked Turning Red. I liked that it was set in Toronto and had a giant red panda uh, kaiju attack at the end. Maybe I should have paired this with Shin Ultraman. But, you know, and I think like a lot of the, the kind of conversation that came out around the movie, like, like of course, young girls are going to, have crushes on boys and periods and it, it just seemed like weird that people were like upset that a film would have that in it you know and like that's the the subject is is you know young teenage girls or i forget how old they're supposed to be in that and like mrs harris goes to paris um you know it, it sort of it was joking a little bit about like hey you know finally there's like this film with leslie manville and isabel huper and it's this completely like inoffensive sweet light comedy drama you know like it's not this like big uh acting showdown performance kind of thing but it, like it's such a sweet satisfying movie and you know tugs at your heartstrings and like a, a part of me appreciates these quieter performances a little bit more than like you know the big uh are kind of like showy performances that feel very you know trying to put attention on themselves and you know I, I think like it's easy to overlook just how good somebody like leslie manville is in that film and i i don't know i it's, I, it's I like fucking, it a lot it's, it's, it's very sweet charming it's, it's really it's charming, charming. Yeah. she's really great she's a world-class actress who again this is this is like uh like we're talking about with numi rapace it's like she they just go be a really the best at what you do go be great and just do this charming little movie that's just going to call on you to be charming and and fun and interesting and have some gravity to it and it's a really it's a really likable movie you know it's, it's a really like great supporting cast just sweet and charming and uh like i don't know that's, that's the kind of film that on one level I'm, I'm just happy to get you know it's like yeah if it, it's if it's completely satisfying and sweet and charming like that that's cool like i like that like not every film needs to be this kind of showy grandiose thing you know yeah, uh, it's so, funny. I don't know. Those were with, two I liked this year. Yeah. With Turning Red, I didn't see Turning Red because my son 
is finally reaching the age he's sort of aging out of seeing every kid's movie and movie yeah. aimed at kids. You mentioned still he's some... watching stuff like The Road Warrior, The Thing. I, I think like when I was well, at he's that been age, doing that since already... well, since <laughs> yeah. he was little, he's been he's been watching those. Uh, Road Warrior and The Thing have been his favorite movies for like four or five years now. But I remember it's... like around that age already feeling like ah, like that's a kids movie. I'm gonna watch, you know. Yeah, uh, and yeah. But I would see all these movies with him. And it's funny, I do understand when I was younger, I would see a lot of kids movies very happily if they looked interesting. Now I definitely have the parent fatigue of like, I'm glad to have a break from watching kid crap. I'm not going to watch stuff like Lightyear and Turning Red. You know, it's it's funny. It's weird. I feel like there's a definite parent middle age thing that happened where you do when i was a younger i didn't think of those movies as kid stuff i thought you know just films are films and there's great interesting stuff in pittsburgh uh, pixar movies there's nothing interesting in pittsburgh no there's plenty of interesting pittsburgh is actually a great city the warhol museum is there but um but it's it's uh, i definitely feel now like there's kid crap and I don't have to watch it anymore. You know, it's a very funny change of like, God bless. I never have to watch one of those Peter Rabbit movies again. Oh, and I, I remember better, saying something better, about the Peter Rabbit. <laughs> it's, it's literally the worst movie I've ever seen. Although this was something I was going to mention. There were four movies I saw this year that I walked out of and I was like, that might be the worst movie I've ever seen in my fucking life. And I kept doing it to a point like, why am I feeling this so much? <laughs> it was it was Moon Age Daydream, the fucking terrible David Bowie doc. VHS 99, which has not a single second of interest in it. It's incredible how fucking bad and boring it is. The Batman, which I was like, this just might be the worst oh, movie I've ever seen. The Batman, <laughs> I hate this. And Women Talking, which takes an incredibly interesting, fascinating real life story that's very powerful and important and harrowing and uh, and and massively important story and turns it into a Twitter thread. It takes the story and everybody talks like they're in a Twitter thread having a fight about wokeness. You know, it's just the worst fucking I walked out of it and I was like, that might be the worst fucking movie I've ever seen in my life. How could they do that to this incredible, complex, in rich, interesting story and just make it into this total fucking idiocy? And I was shocked to learn the writer of the book is actually from a Mennonite community. That's a movie that feels as phony as a three dollar bill with Rondo Hatton's picture on it. Thirty dollar bill with Bill Graham's picture on it. It's It's terrible. Anyway. I'm glad that I walked out of that screen to go see Jafar Panahi's No Bears instead. Which That's is very... a great movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This is my my last one on the list. It's funny how there's all these like big movies that really mattered to people, like everything all aware, everything everywhere all at once, and 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 the Fablemans and the Whale stuff I mean, that we're they're, just they're not even fine, going like to talk about. <laughs> yeah, that we're just not going to touch. Yeah. Tar. Like, have we even said the word tar yet? That's like I, the well, most I, important I, I movie. Think I said I, I prefer Mrs. Harris goes to Paris over time. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a, like that's that's uh, you and you were right I, I to like, say it. No, well, like, I think there is a thing to be said about like what Leslie Manville is doing in that versus what Kate Blanchett is doing in Tar, which is like like there's something about that performance which I find almost like obscene, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this is what I always talk about. This is the the, the an argument that I find 
It seems very obvious to me. It really upsets people. I think Zulowski's Possession is a very interesting movie, except it's held back by Isabella Janey's performance, which is a mediocre to bad performance. And people are like, what do you mean? The subway freak out. And all I can say is, do you not understand that shit is the easiest shit in the world for an actor to do? That sort of high intensity over emotive stuff is the easiest stuff in the world for an actor to do when you say just like remove the limiters just go for broke actors love it but it's the easiest stuff to do it's much much more difficult to do something like mrs harris goes to paris where you have to operate within very specific confines of performance and tone and carry a movie with your likability as well and have a richness and difficulty to it that that's a much higher degree of difficulty than go for broke. You know, it, it really is like uh, to perform a symphony is much harder than just like a punk rock bang on the drums as hard as you can and scream into the mic. It just really is. And we had a subway possession scene in 2022. Mia Goss fucking monologuing girl <laughs> that everybody loves so much. Yeah. Just freak freak out, do your actor thing, go crazy, people will fucking eat it up, and they did. Yeah, but it's but it's you know, it's a very blank, mediocre performance in possession. Okay, my last uh pick, my super picks, my four star thumbs up, likes of the year. No, John, I'm surprised you didn't mention this one. It's when we saw together, Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. It's yes, an very it's good. a yeah, very good movie. It's a French animated movie. I think it's done in like rotoscope, some kind of rotoscope process. Uh, it's hand drawn, but they've clearly animated over over the actors in it. And it's based on a um, uh, 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 Haruki Murakami short story collection. And it's the main thrust of the plot is about a giant talking frog who's uh, enlisted a bank manager to save uh, a city from destruction at the hands of giant, disgusting underground worm beings, right? Am I describing that plot fairly enough? Um, and it's just a bunch of interconnected short stories. And uh, it's excellent. It's an excellent movie. The short stories are great. It's really, it's really something, this movie. And there was, we saw it at Toronto and there was not a peep about it coming out. And I do feel like, I guess there's some kind of Murakami fatigue or something, but I really felt like um, coming off of last year that there'd be like heat on another Murakami movie in that way, but it's, it's disappeared into the ether. Uh, but this, this is, is like a really like the first I'm hearing about it. So it's really neat. Yeah. It's a really neat, cool really movie. Cool. It's bizarre the way the best, when Murakami goes bizarre, it's in that vein for sure. But it's, he's great. And he's the, his style and his tone is the whole show. And it's got a nice, delicate animation to it. And it's, it's a neat movie. It's really cool. It's one of those that I, I wouldn't hesitate to people like, go out of your way, find it. You'll like it. It's a special, memorable experience. This is a, this is a movie that is like a movie that just feels like should be cult movie. Also the kind of movie that like multiple people are going to see this and it's going to be their favorite movie of all time. You know, it's just got that kind of feel and originality and effectiveness to it. Yeah, I hope more people get to see it. 
Martin, do you have any other movies you want to John, you have no thoughts on it? Oh, I, you wrapped it. He's... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I agree with I agree with everything you said. I'm just good. I'm just saying they should have more. I, I just kind of want to mention some of the the streaming or television type things that I saw this year that didn't quite fit into the regular boxes. Um, Star Trek: Strange New Worlds, I, I really liked. Uh, yeah, that was great. It, the, it just felt like kind of the perfect blend of of throwback to what made Star Trek good while also pushing it forward and like the. On it, like I thought, like for the most part, I think the writing it's like A minus instead of A or something like that. Like it's like ah, oh, like I kind of wish it would just get that little bump to get over that hill. But like it's probably the first season of a Star Trek show that felt like that consistent. Maybe out of like any Star Trek show, and I thought the the, the season finale, which is almost feature length, it's. Uh, like that's better than any of the J.J. Abrams movies. Like it's it's got really some of the best storytelling I've seen out of Star Trek in like like decades. You know, <laughs> so I, I really really enjoyed that. I I liked all the new characters. I liked how they approached familiar characters and kind of put a new spin on them or put them in new contexts. Um, so that that was just like one of my favorite things I watched this year. I I like that more than any of the Star Wars stuff that I saw this year. <laughs> I know Andor got a lot of praise, but it's also like I, I think there's like a really good arc in there, but I think that's a show that just kind of got killed by it probably never should have been a show. It should have been like three TV movies or something like that. It, it's just paced terribly. And uh it the ending is is kind of weak, you know, for for what that show is. Um just to talk about my son a little bit too, with Andor, my son watched Nightcrawler recently and loved right. it and to, to the transition he's making to older movies and so he never liked any star wars stuff but i mentioned andor was directed was made by the nightcrawler guy so we started andor that's the only way i've been able to get him into star wars is by saying from the maker of nightcrawler it, that's interesting like it's such a weird entry point uh to get into star wars uh well i'm not I, into I, star wars at all no so there's no been i know no, there's but been I'm, no I'm just pressure about like how would that feel for somebody if like the first star wars thing they really get into is is andor because like i think the um i think tony gilroy's even mentioned like he doesn't even really like star wars he likes blade runner and it definitely has that feel to it at times but like the the whole arc with andy circus and the, the prison i thought that was just like fantastic science fiction you know that kind of stands on its own and like a, a lot of the weakest things i thought in it were the ties to other star wars things and the kind of way that television has to be structured where it's like oh he needs the plot thread where he's searching for his sister which won't get resolved this season and you know things like that but i, I feel like if they kind of reapproached the story they wanted to tell and did it as uh maybe like a, a series of tv movies like oh here's four tv movies like i, I think that would have been better because it like that the whole like watching it from week to week thing I, I thought wasn't working but probably the best uh television streaming kind of thing i watched this year was the Guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities which is kind of like a throwback to the masters of horror type anthology horror show and you know like by its nature you're gonna like some more than others but i, I thought like it was just such a great sample of like interesting filmmakers and like filmmakers who maybe like haven't had as many opportunities as as you've kind of feel like would have been warranted you know you had people like Vincenzo Natale and Lily Amapur who um 
you know, I, I know like Bad Batch was uh, maybe a dud, but it's like one of those filmmakers who were like, ah, like I wish they didn't immediately kind of disappear after that. Um, Panos Cosmatos did an episode. I think maybe maybe the best one, it's uh, this episode, The Autopsy with uh, F. Marie Abraham, directed by uh, David Pryor, who did The Empty Man, which was kind of a film that a lot of people yeah. say, like the, the release of, um, I guess, Fox getting bought up by Disney, the, the release kind of got botched and it just kind of got like shuffled out and it didn't get maybe the attention that it, it warranted. But a great bunch of stories, high quality special effects. It's the kind of streaming thing that I think like in a couple of years, people are going to realize like how good we had it. You know, this is yeah. a real like like last days of Rome kind of like streaming. No, this is what drives me where, crazy yeah. where everybody's been complaining about streaming. It's like you are living in the golden age of access. Please respect this. And now that it's ending, it's like people are going, oh, well, I guess that's going by physical media. And it's like, yeah, we had, we had something great. Now we got to go back to fucking crap ass physical media world <laughs> where it's, you can't see anything you want. You have to own a goddamn DVD of it. Um, but yeah, I also agree. Captain of Curiosities was really interesting. A lot of anthology series uh, stink. They, they're, it's easy to get hyped up for them, and then they disappoint you. Masters of Horror is a great Masters of Horror. Are... There's like, the, the, there's cigarette burns, which is great, and that's about it. You know? Well, there's, like, there's the, uh, the there's Ar a couple that are the, all Argen right, but, yeah. the Argentos are interesting. The Gordons yeah. are interesting, and but, but that John one of the Joe Dante's towers yeah. above the other ones. Like it's. Uh, Oh, I like I like Screwfly more than I like that really? one. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah, and I also like Jennifer more than I like that one, but that's personal taste. All right. Uh, uh, but I get like I can like it's been yeah. fun talking to people about Cabinet of Curiosities where it's like, "Oh, your favorite episode's Pickman's Model? Like that's really yeah. cool. And what, you know, what did you like about that one?" And like I feel like is that supposed like to be a reference? Is Pickman's Model supposed to be a reference to Pickman's Gallery in Fallout 4? Go. I, I don't believe so. I think it's from the, the Lovecraft story. I, I think maybe the Fallout 4 reference could be a reference to Lovecraft. I don't it know. Is, but... It is, in fact. You got the question exactly right. Okay. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of, uh, of uh, Lovecraft references all throughout the Fallout okay. series. I, a couple of these are based on Lovecraft stories. and But like one thing I liked about it, it was just like each episode has its own feel to it like each director it seems like they must have had a lot of leeway because each one has its own sort of style and feel and tone and like even um even ones that i think like didn't necessarily work overall like the, the kate micucci one where she's like putting the the goop on her face <laughs> like yeah. you know it, it's just like fun to see like oh like this one's different what, what how much where's this gonna go and how much you know, did your love of kate micucci drive your interest in that one uh like 60 percent, you know <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, no it's actually it's actually good there's no individual one that i was like that was awesome but i think it's it's what you want and it, it's what you always imagine an anthology series will be which is a bunch yeah. of individually interesting episodes by interesting I, I filmmakers. Like it's, it's the rare horror anthology series where i feel like it's it's greater than the sum of its episodes you know there's some where it's like you know there's the creep show anthology series that's going on now where like oh i like the bad episode okay i like that episode okay uh overall yeah this one i felt like okay maybe that wasn't the greatest episode but i feel like it all kind of contributes to making the show just this really 
yeah. rich and interesting experience where you kind of go from one to the next and you know each each episode gives you a little bit of this uh, extra dimension so like really i honestly this was like one of my favorite things that i watched this year overall i think you know cumulatively i still haven't seen del toro's um, pinocchio partly because pinocchio creeps me out yeah <laughs> for the reason of who gives a fuck about pinocchio I, I, for that reason we've talked like, yeah. I, I i i'm like baffled why certain filmmakers seem to have Pinocchio as like their dream project. Fellini! Like, Fellini, Fellini was famously like, yeah. I would love to make a Pinocchio movie. Robert like, Downey Jr. are you talking People like about? Stanley Kubrick where it's Ro- like, Roberto Benigni. AI, this is the one. Like, yeah. <laughs> Benigni, I, I think he made two of Fra- them, right? Francis Coppola tried to sue Benigni because uh, <laughs> Pinocchio was like his his dead son's favorite story and so that was his dream project and then Benigni got to write <laughs> something like that. He was pissed. Oh, yeah. But like, it's just one of those stories where like, I don't really, I don't see what's great about it. And I find it a little bit like, just as a story, I find it kind of off-putting. It's it's sort of weird and creepy, the story. But yeah, it's very, it's very strange as you pointed there's out. There's something like, it, it, uh, it's not like quite the same kind of alarm bells that go off in my head when somebody says like their favorite or their, their ideal story they want to make a movie of is like uh, Peter Pan, where I'm like... What's wrong with you? But like, there's something about Pinocchio where like so many filmmakers who are like considered like giants or huge figures talk about like, man, Pinocchio. I'm like, they got a hard get it. Does it does it set off more or le- more or fewer alarm bells than somebody saying my dream project is to remake Always? <laughs> well you can't do that because always is perfect what's the uh, name the always is not the name of the original film right spielberg film or no the, it's uh... a remake yeah oh no you're right you're right i wasn't quick enough about what is the original called i think it's wait we're gonna cut all this out no uh it's the remake <laughs> it's it's called a guy named joe a guy named joe okay. is the name of the original i remember it's, it's a um, remake a guy okay. named joe since, well, since we're gonna cut own... quick quick always story mm. Uh, when I first went to, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad this has come to this. All right, an always well, story. Tell me. <laughs> um, when I first went to York for film school, I think it was like maybe the second class we ever had. We had somebody come in who, uh, oh my god, it, I think he was like, I forget if he was a producer or a writer. He worked on Always, and. They said like, okay, and who here has seen Always? And my hand was literally the only one that went up. <laughs> you just see the disappointment on this guy's face. And he gave us like a kind of a lecture about like how hard the film industry is. And he like, I don't know if he was there to like scare us into like reconsidering or what, but like that was kind of his approach. But like, I, I remember literally I was the only one in my film class who had seen Always. Um, Here's my only thought about always. Uh, when Dawson Leary is professing to be a big Spielberg fan, he shows Pacey all of his uh, Spielberg posters all over his room. And he has one for every single movie. She says, really? And he says, yes. And he opens the closet door to reveal the hidden posters for Hook and Always. And he says, <laughs> I keep these doors shut most of the time. That's my arm. Um, well, one thing that's kind of funny good, to me about like, Kevin Williamson. You, you hear people who have these like opinions on Spielberg that clearly have not changed in like 20 years or 25 years whenever you hear somebody who's like oh yeah hook it's spielberg's worst movie i'm like where have you been for the last 20 <laughs> years like what are you talking about that's um, slightly that's slightly preferable to hook revisionism though and the like rufio was actually cool it's like eh, get us out of here 
get all of this out of here. Get away from me. I think uh, even in always, I, I kind of just I don't die. like uh, Richard Dreyfus in that. But I'll say to the day I die, where Spielberg is, kick the can. <laughs> <laughs> it is oh. terrible. I will what, say what's crazy is like <laughs> when when, so, when your film is somehow worse than the one that literally got people murdered. <laughs> it's like how how is it possible? Um, uh, you know, we were just a little talk about the Fablemans a little bit uh, after the screening at TIFF we were at they unexpectedly brought out Spielberg Seth Rogen, Paul Dano, the lead actor and Tony Kushner uh, who wrote it and uh, and they normally never and do Judd Hirsch. oh and Judd Hirsch who I, how could I forget Judge Hirsch who monopolized <laughs> the microphone but um, they uh, they normally don't do Q&A's after the, the press and industry screenings there it's sort of like taboo so most of the audience got up and left so it was like a quarter of the theater there to see Spielberg in this very star studded thing and the most memorable moment from it was is at one point Spielberg said Fablemans is a really interesting we could talk about it in depth it's a sort of an interesting admission by Spielberg that he doesn't know why he does what he does and he feels like a failure in some way like Fablemans is a where did it all go wrong movie about the most successful director of all time right it's a very strange movie it's a movie that's about his inability to reflect almost it's a movie that almost reflects on his inability to reflect as an artist and instead can't reflect on his inability to reflect on an artist as an artist. It's a very strange movie. And during the Q&A, he said, I feel like I had never made a real movie before this. I feel like this was the first real work I did. And Tony Kushner, who has written several movies for Spielberg, had like a nervous breakdown of like, no, Steven, no, we have done real work before. Like this very strong, like, no, Steven, I did not throw my life away becoming your guy. I was a playwright who won all these are, it was a very funny like re, like he clearly i want a movie about like tony kushner regrets hitching his wagon to spielberg <laughs> but how could he not i want the tony kushner version of the fablemans that's about like well how could i say no to him <laughs> he wanted me to write a lincoln movie you know kind of thing well you know since uh since we're talking about these sort of mostly autobiographical kind of things have you seen uh armageddon time no, I don't watch movies that are that are obviously bad. Okay. I also I, I also don't watch James Gray movies due to him not right. being any good. Because I feel like this film is kind of like an interesting I didn't like it at all, but it's a very interesting case study you know of like why? maybe me, why let, James Gray is bad. Like there's just well, enough introspection there to be why like, you didn't like it. Okay. Is that James Gray is terrible. But go on. He, he's somebody who I almost always like I almost like this. Like, I feel like he has the potential to make something that I'd really like, but he's a, this he's, film, it's... He's uh, an art fraud. I know it's... That's and, what this film is about. But, like, but, but, but Polanski, Roman Polanski, who okay. I know is not kosher to talk about, he talks about, somebody asked him once why he made Fearless Vampire Killers, even though it seems so off topic for him and such a strange match. And he talks about the producer, I forget what the producer of it, his name was, who it was. And he said, this asshole came and he seduced me with all of his talk about art. 
heart, right? That's James Gray. I feel like if you are able to be seduced, he's an art womanizer. He seduces you with the idea that he's an artist. And if you're able to be tricked by that kind of overt fraud, I, you deserve I, to get pregnant and left. I always feel like that. that's how I feel going into these movies over and over again. And then coming out, I'm like, what was I thinking? It's like every single time. But this one, it was like... He's it's he's like, a, he's it, the it, movie equivalent of a pickup artist. He sucks, man. I, I know. Stop well, being right. fooled well, by the feathered hat. He's the Andrew Tate of because the, film, it, the way it starts off, it's like, oh, it's going to deal with all this. He, it's like him going to try to grapple with like race and class and social political stuff and politics. And like by the end, it's just him berating his younger self for his own like <laughs> lack of ethical fiber. Like it's like, oh my god. Like, it, and you feel like. It's not a great film, but you just feel like there's something in there that kind of explains why his films don't work. You know, yeah. like it's, it's like him trying to like realize like, huh, I'm not a like, like I'm a weak person. I feel yeah. like is the, like the conclusion at the end of that movie. Well, it's but like, that's yeah, <laughs> which is like just an interesting stance, but. In the Fablemans, yep. there's that moment where the bully who's been beating him up, he makes the movie that makes the bully look Oh, heroic. and he's asking, why'd you make me look that way? And he says, I yep. don't know. And I think that's the only genuine thing Spielberg has ever expressed in any of his movies. It's the only moment for a guy who's a true foe fan. This is the only true foe-ish moment in any of his movies is that helpless, I don't understand. I'm cursed to be talented. I'm cursed to be an audience pleaser. I'm cursed to do this. And the interesting thing about the beginning of the Fablemans is that that again, he doesn't have the ability to reflect on. He makes his first movie about the train crash because the train crash he's seen on screen has upset him so much. And for a split second there, you're like, am I getting a fucking Sylvester Matushka movie? Is that his Is that his origin story? You know, the Italian partisan who got enlisted to help blow up Nazi train tracks because he loved jerking off to train wrecks. That was what he loved doing. That's my that's my dream project, not Pinocchio. It's Sylvester Matushka movie. But it's like, are we going to get something like actually perverse and weird? Like, I'm driven to do this by traumas. But instead, we get this expression of like, I'm helpless to be a good filmmaker. And it unsettles me uh, to a point that I can't understand. It unsettles me. But I got to do it. And I'm the greatest you know, it's a very strange tone for a movie. Also, one thing that John Ford at the end, John Ford talks about, you put the horizon lower, you put the horizon high, oh, that yeah. the horizon is always across the middle of the screen in the Fablements. And I wonder, like, <laughs> is that on purpose? I, I feel like somehow that's got to be on purpose. Yeah. And like, of course, like, you know, I, the way Spielberg explained that story, the way I heard it before, like that it wasn't about visual composition. It was about art. Is yeah. interesting in the in the margins and the extremes and yeah i feel like you know i don't know if that's necessarily what what everyone would get out of this metal scene i thought it was funny david lambert pointed out it pointed out that um it's a drawing spielberg from one of his omitted, movies well spielberg omitted the uh the, the sketchbook full of like penis drawings and i feel like well, I, that's, I that's what like, spielberg always like omits spielberg from his sanitized films. the yeah. That's what he always omits from his films. He, as a person, doesn't know what to do with a notebook full of dicks. He's not capable of, of dealing with it as a human being, as an artist, you know? And this movie comes very close to being able to 
to touch that, you know, he's, it's a crazy, it's a love letter to infidelity, this movie that has an inability to reflect on how divorce and infidelity impacted his own life on how it impacted his father. It's a movie that says basically like your parents don't owe you anything. They, people have got to pursue their own happiness. And it's like, is that true? Your sisters seem to disagree with that, but they're given like 15 seconds of time, you know, like you have an inability to, to deal with this note full book full of dicks your mom left behind. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you're, you're too, both too generous and too incurious about her in a way that makes it feel like, how do you not have the ability to reflect, you know, anyway, it's an interesting <laughs> movie for being, uh, 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 an expression of of total failure from several uh, from several angles. Total failure as an artist. All right, so guys, we're reaching the three hour mark here. Do we want to go ahead and do your uh, wrap up idea, Chris? Yeah, um, let's do it. Are you still up for it, Martin? You're not bored, are you? No, I'm I'm not bored. Are you angry? <laughs> But uh, Martin, uh, you want to start off? Um, Wait, Chris, you have to explain idea. to you. Oh, I also said because you, we don't watch a lot of new movies and maybe won't have enough to talk about, which is clearly proven to be true right here, that we should also talk about uh, just real quick, two picks for each of us, an artwork that we sort of fell back in love with that we hadn't thought about in a long time or maybe had had become estranged from that we saw again, a film that we saw again that we sort of fell back in love with, and then an artwork that we discovered uh, for the first time that, that we hadn't um, known before, a film that we hadn't discovered before. And for me to go first, my pick for the one I fell back in love with again is Latalant. Uh, this year, I've been watching a ton of Truffaut. I decided to fill in all of my blind spots in Truffaut and watch Truffaut movies I haven't seen for a long time. And when you get really steeped in Truffaut and you're reading a lot of interviews and watching interviews with them, his love for Jean Vigo is something that's really big. So I felt like I need to go watch all of Jean Vigo's movies again, too. There's only three of them. And Latalant is a movie I loved. I hadn't stopped loving Latalant, but watching it again, it was like this is the best movie ever made. This is, I feel confident saying that with like Seven Samurai, like putting it there. It's everything a movie can be. It's just so um, beautiful and amazing and romantic and funny and strange and unpredictable. Uh, definitely the most romantic movie ever made about a French tugboat captain. Although Remorks comes very close. Jean Gabana remarks is a close second. It's also a very romantic movie about a French tugboat captain, but it's, it's just really phenomenal. And that's the one um, that I fell back in love with the movies. I, um, discovered, uh, this is on recommendation from, um, Tony Stella are uh, Kazuo Hara's movies. I had seen The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On and really, really liked it. That's one of Errol Morris's favorite documentaries. He sometimes called it his favorite documentary. And um, Tony Stella was like, you got to see his other work. And he's a really personal uh, self-portrait, almost documentarian, but very, very weird master of discomfort, master of just absolutely pressing his camera into open wounds and just pushing things further uh, than you could imagine them being pushed. Uh, the movie about his um, wife, uh, I'm not sure if they were married, but his girlfriend that he has a child with leaving him for a woman and him not knowing how to deal with it. So he forces 
uh, his way into making a documentary about her and her new life um, is is just something that's got to be seen to be believed. It's both the most romantic and creepy and possibly it's just problematic fave no it's just a deeply problematic movie that also expresses something so rich and human and crazy that you almost can't believe you're seeing it he's most famous for an emperor's naked army marches on when he's talking to an interview subject and he's not getting the answers he wants he physically attacks the interview subject and tries to beat him up on camera and he's that kind of of filmmaker just a guy who um can't help but absolutely cut his heart open and point a camera at it. And that was an interesting discovery for me. My rediscovered artwork, um, Museum of the Moving Image, did a pioneering women in Australian cinema series this last year, which was great. They showed Clara Law's Floating Life, Ann Turner's Celia, Tracy Moffat's Bedevil, lots of movies, shorts by Susan Lambert and Margot Nash, lots of great stuff. And it was an opportunity for me to fall back in love with the mama of those films, obviously, My Brilliant Career by Julia Armstrong. Oh, so good. Just a phenomenal film that I hadn't thought about in way too long and revisited. And uh, it's just, it's brilliant. It's funny that we were talking about um, Banshees of Inishirin and how it kind of has this stance on, you know, uh, just because you think you're a great artist doesn't mean that, you know, you can just leave your town and become a great artist. It's almost the a- antithetical to that, where it's like, you definitely need to get away from these people because you're clearly different and interesting and talented. And you're just going to get bogged down by, you know, your life and like get away from it and like get your own situation going. It's a great feminist perspective, but also a very universal one, I think, you know, Um, and also how, you know, when you compromise and you have to do things in your life you don't want to do, you can be great at them. Just like she's great at like fostering those kids and being a nanny. Uh, It's just like a very multi-layered, very beautiful, beautiful film with an amazing central performance by Judy Davis. And I'm so glad to watch it again. It's so fucking good. And our our guy Sam Neill is so charming in it. Of course, it's Sam Neill. (laughs) You know, that's just a little added bonus. Oh, great pick, man. And the artwork that I saw for the very first time, and I guess... um, I should thank Anthony King uh, for doing his cult movies podcast that we've been uh, on a few times uh, because I realized looking at Danny Perry's cult movies book, I'd never actually seen Forbidden Planet from beginning to end. You know, I knew what it was. Yeah. I never thought of it like, no, this is something you need to sit down and watch and pay attention to. So I did it on Halloween and a little homage to Halloween and John Carpenter, obviously. That's the movie they watch in, in that film. And I loved it. It's so good. Such a deep, rich, interesting film uh, with lots of great philosophical ideas about, you know, technology and culture um, that are all, you know, just under the surface of this really interesting and fun and exciting story that's just a space story set on a planet. And I get it now. I get it. You know, like, you know, you always know that Forbidden Planet is one of the great iconic milestones of science fiction. Uh, something that, you know, what we've lost in a way, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. And now I understand why, you know, seeing it again, I've seen it for the first time was just uh, opened my eyes to it. So you know absolutely what's, loved it. You know what's great in that movie? What that movie got that's great? electric tonalities great <laughs> electric tonalities i love how there's not a credit for score it just says electric tonalities, tonalities. By. but i saw that movie with <laughs> that's Park. like every soundtrack now that's <laughs> <laughs> true i saw that movie in the theater at film form with parker and it was 
fucking awesome experience. Fucking awesome. And it's great to see it with a kid who's going in thinking they're going to see like cheeseball 50 sci-fi and like, no, it's about a monster from the id. It's about <laughs> repressed desire manifesting as psychic, destructive, psychic, like rape monster energy. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Martin, what do you got? Uh, one film that I rediscovered this year was Itu Lamatambien, which I feel like... Oh, another great choice, yeah, Martin. I, I, Alfonso Caron, he's somebody who, like, I haven't really liked many of his films. I like his, his enthusiasm for film. If you ever hear him talking, he's very, like, yeah energetic. But, I, like, I just haven't really liked most of his recent stuff. So I kind of forgot that this was good. <laughs> and, like, it's been such a long time, honestly, since I saw it. Like, um. Diego Luda and Gail Garcia Bernal are two actors who I really like. But like for me, like Diego Luda, I was re-watching this because of the Andor, but like, oh, he's the guy from like, you know, Mr. Lonely. Like he's <laughs> like in my mind, that's where he came from. Like I, I kind of forgot that like it's crazy that like this is the film that kind of launched their careers, both of them, but like I kind of forget that they're in this. Like I know them yeah. from other things. So I rewatched this for the first time in a long time, and it was kind of just like Oh right, this is good. This is a good movie. Oh, with um, with I love you too, Mama Tambian. It's funny. I also don't like Curon stuff. Talking about this right after the Fablemans, he becomes Spielberg after making this movie. He goes and he makes sort of like uh, Hollywood entertainments that are serious and real and and uh, intelligent and good in an objective way, but have somehow become sanitized of their humanity. That's what happens to Spielberg. The Fablemans needs to be to Mama Tambien. It needs to be sexy. It needs to be a little perverted. It needs to be a little weird. It needs to be a little messy. It needs to be a little human. It needs to have Sammy Fableman jerking off on a diving board saying, oh, Salmita, Salmita. <laughs> That's what Fableman's is missing, you know, and and that Itu Mama Tambien has. Itu Mama Tambien is a really remarkable movie that I think really, really holds up well that I, I still really like because it's actually fucking sexy the way real life is sexy the way when when you meet a woman and have an intense chemistry and get uh, shuttled off on an adventure when you get just taken in and enraptured and everybody gets swept up in like fucking erotic hot energy that's dangerous and maybe stupid and immature and weird and and unresolvable with jagged edges that's what that movie's like and it's genuinely it's genuinely hot and genuinely human you know and that's and Spielberg is incapable of that. And uh, a film that was a new discovery for me was completely new. I also found out about this through or because of Tony Stella, and that's uh, Alexander Ptushko's Ilya Muromets, which um, th there was a oh. new restoration that got put out. Because uh, I guess before that, it was like the film that was cut up and dubbed and the Mystery Science Theater 3000 would make fun of. But it was just something I hadn't seen before, and I liked the the folk tale, the fantasy aspect. I, visually, it, it's just something I haven't really stopped thinking about since I saw it. It's, it's got this fairy tale kind of grandeur to it that, uh, like, I completely fell in love with. And even when the special effects don't look, I mean, like, none of the special effects look realistic in it, but they're not supposed to. And like, that's one thing I, I'm always kind of fascinated by is how. Film can be completely fake and still move you and still be compelling. And I don't know, just learning about the production too, like all the interesting things about how, um, 
you know, they couldn't shoot this big army, but they could have little torches into this like big panorama where they had to, uh, they could only afford to do the shot one time. So they had to like bribe some boatmen not to go down the river <laughs> just to make sure that they got this shot. And like, also just thinking about, you know, state of the world, like it's, it's this film about, um, Kiev being put under siege by this overwhelming force and I, something about the film just really resonated with me and I, I hadn't stopped thinking about it since I saw it. Plus it's got a dragon and that's awesome. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Martin, thank you for joining us for this. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and we the yeah, good. and we definitely talked about a bunch of movies we wouldn't have talked about otherwise if it was me, just me and John. Me and John have a tendency to be really in sync on things, so it's good to have somebody coming in and throwing a bunch of wild cards at us too. <laughs> the wild card. Uh, well, and it's great because like you guys were at TIFF, and uh, you guys saw things in festivals and things I hadn't seen, so it was great just to hear about that and kind of be on the periphery of that conversation and you know definitely leaves me wanting to see more more films and more things so i, I had a lot of fun thank you yeah well we're sorry that uh we um didn't get to meet up with you at toronto this year um, obviously you're pretty much as far away from toronto as we are at this point so totally get it but um but yeah it was a great talk with you and i'm just gonna say this last thing before we cut to the music i like the monsters 